Brotaku Men of Culture Games Weekly Episode 21. Insert obligatory we can drink now. Joke here. Recorded May 13th, 2020. I am one of your hosts, Aaron. Joined as always by my co-host, Jordan. Hello. I'm getting into the flow of that. Like, Jordan is just how I have to say it from now on. It's true. that They used to do that to me in high school, too. Whenever I walk into a room, they would go, Jordan, yes. I had a... my name. I had a dream last night that you were in, my friend, and we, like, it, it was the weirdest dream, and I don't know why I remember it so vividly. It was, we were at your dad's house, but, like, it wasn't your dad's house that I'd ever been to, so, I mean, maybe I'm just, like, mind-melded with you so much. Maybe it's his new house. I don't know. Either way, we broke into his secret basement where he had a pop machine that had Dr. Pepper 2 and Cheetos 2 that were unreleased to this point. And, like, a bunch of, like, cool video games and stuff. And he wasn't very happy that we got down there. So he was just going to save it all for himself. I, I guess. I mean, I mean it I, sounds like my dad. How dare your dad hide Dr. Pepper 2 from me, you know? He <laughs> he bought an Xbox One, and he was like, no, this is mine. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Uh, he bought and the Xbox he, Two. And then he, uh, he didn't let us play it before he moved over to Arizona. <laughs> Anyway, we are also, <laughs> dreams aside, we are also joined by, you, you've heard of him before. We talk, uh, I guarantee we've probably mentioned this name on the podcast more than any other name. We are joined by our good friend, Michael. Hello. What up, Mike? Not a, not a lot. <laughs> I, I always love like people who like haven't podcasted with us a bunch, just like throwing them right on the spot like that. Like, hey! You gotta I mean, do I mean, it. At this, exact, at this exact moment, other than uh, being here as a star or a guest star on the podcast, I'm just kind of editing a map for our next play session. Ah, oh, shoot. So, yeah, as we teased last week, we're going to be talking. Mike's talking, of course, about Dungeons and Dragons, I assume. So, we're going to be talking. That's going to be topic of the week, something a little different here on the show. Maybe if it goes over well, we can like make a board game podcast. That would be fun. Yeah, that could be interesting, too. Also sounds like a lot more work for me, so maybe not. We still have other shows we've been promising, so we got to get that anime show going, Jordan. We do. All right. Well, we've got a big show for you guys. Like I said, we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons with Mike. We're going to start the Hollow Knight Piano Book Giveaway. We've got big news, including Tony Hawk's grand return, uh, Microsoft's terrible game showing that we talked about last week it is so like i was so disappointed with it fellas like we'll, we'll talk about it but it was not good um some good sony news i feel coming coming up tomorrow but first we will start as always with what have we been playing mike you're our guest we typically let our guests go first and everybody hunker down this podcast is gonna be a long one i've been playing a lot of games I mean, we've been, you know, with the pandemic, quarantine, whatever you want to describe it as going on. A lot of people are home from work right now, myself included. I've been home for like two months now from the job. I mean, we were on layoff a little bit before this actually hit, so that added to it. But uh, I actually wasn't gaming a whole lot during the first month because I was kind of expecting to go back to work, so I didn't really break out of my normal routine. During that time, I was just playing a lot of Destiny 2 and World of Warcraft, and I was uh, getting my reps up for flying and 
kind of got burnt out on both of those. And, and then my friend Shane and I started playing Division Two again right before my uh, my main PC broke down, had some problems. And then after it seemed like we were going to be off for a much longer time, I decided to really dig into my backlog and get busting on some of those games that I haven't been uh, uh, playing that I've been collecting. And that includes uh, Spyro, the Reignited Trilogy 1 and 2. Uh, haven't played 3 yet, though. Star Wars Battlefront 2, I finally picked up and gave a try after I heard about some good stuff of them changing the game the way it should be. I played Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch, uh, the PS4 remaster with the 4K setting, uh, Marvel Spider-Man, Persona 4 Dancing All Night, which is a rhythm game and also kind of a, a short sequel to like what was happening after the original installment of Persona 4, uh, God of War, the PS4 game medieval resurrection on ps4 team sonic racing battlefield 5 and horizon zero dawn i just recently uh uploaded and started messing around with and almost all of these games uh that i did on playstation i got the platinum trophy for as well so i put a lot of time into making sure i did everything all right so let's go through this one at a time um mike what in the world is going on with destiny 2 right now because for those people who might not follow destiny very close um even people who love Destiny do not like Destiny right now, it seems. So I think, and this could just be personal opinion, but I think seasons are bad for Destiny. And the reason I say that is because the game started all the way back with the original Destiny as a looter shooter, um, almost MMO light or what they called a share world shooter at first experience and you know the game was kind of you play the story you finish and then after that there's all these you know different equipments that you can find you can grind for there's you know raid activities and they've expanded on all that since then i mean i wouldn't even say the game was really good until the first expansion the taken king came out um but from then you know it was pretty solid they had a good track going and then they started to do I don't know if it's influenced by Activision, but now that they've been self-publishing for about a year now, I don't know if they're just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. But uh, this year had a lot of, in particular, I think a lot of the, the player base is unhappy because, you know, with a game where you get on and grind, you want to be able to get on and grind when you have the time to do it. And not everybody, you know, has that same amount of time or the same play schedule. And so when you do things like put seasons in a game and you add FOMO, which is an acronym for the fear of missing out, is a business term to get people into doing something in a certain period of time to get them to spend their money or their time or, or whatever on a, a activity or a media. Um, when you add that into a game like Destiny or Destiny 2, you know, this is where you have a huge collection of things to hunt after in the game, whether it's the, the guns, the armors, the vehicles, the, the different shaders and cosmetic items. Like the people who've been with this game for like five, six years now are really into, you know, collecting the stuff and completing their collections and they like doing the grind and they like filling out their catalog and having all their different builds. And when you insert FOMO into the game like that or seasons and you're like, oh, you can only get this thing during this exact time and then a player who's been following this game for like five six years is like oh well i'm on 
you know, business in Belize or whatever for next month and I'm going to miss this whole event. So like now my collection's ruined and I can't do it. And so I, I guess a lot of people get upset about that. And I myself have always been a, a backer of the idea that I think Animal Crossing developers said it best, which is kind of interesting comparing Animal Crossing to Destiny, but they described their model for their game development as a soft progression system. And that idea basically is just that if you have the time, put in the time. And if you want to like time travel and play a bunch of the game right now, go ahead. Otherwise, for everyone else, you can just play casually a couple hours a day and you'll get there. And I, I wish that was the way they continued to do Destiny and Destiny 2 is just if you have the time, play. Let people play and grind things and get the things. You know, trying to set a scheduled amount of time like, oh, between this month and this month, you got to do all these things. So, you know, some people are busy at that time or some people aren't interested or some people don't have the money to buy that season. And I, I just think seasons overall have been kind of a downer for Destiny and I, especially because they keep resetting the power level so imagine like your character just let's say like level one to ten and it takes like eight hours to do that and so now every three months you're like well now i gotta spend like eight hours getting my level back up just to do the things i was already doing and you know it used to be like once a year when they'd have a big expansion and there was a payoff because there was you know new content whether it was dungeons uh strikes which are activities you do with a small group you fight bosses and solve puzzles or, or raids where you get a bigger group and you solve puzzles, fight bosses, get rewards, PVP, you know, whatever. But all those things together, you used to be able to just do. And now it's like every three months you got to redo everything. And then you're like, man, you know, there's, and it's not that there isn't a lot to do in the game. There's tons to do in the game, but when you've been playing it a lot and they just keep asking you to redo the same things, you're just like, come on. And, and the, final straw on this was this most recent uh, event that they did and i mean i understand what they wanted to do and it's and it's kind of been a question in the destiny community for a long time is there's the three main characters the hunter the titan and the warlock i've been a hunter since i began just because frilly capes are awesome and coming from a game like world of warcraft my characters always had a cape so that was one of the main deciding factors that and i already knew people were playing warlocks so i was like cool i'm gonna be the hunter then and uh the newest event was called guardian games and the whole point of it was to see you know which class is the most determined and to basically just set out and do a list of chores every day and the more people who logged in and did the chores would add up to a uh, a meter which they displayed in the tower which was actually kind of cool because you could see like your flag rising or falling depending on the effort that your class is putting in but i mean it that's what it just came down to is though is it's like three weeks of logging in to do chores every day uh no i'm good it's like <laughs> i just want to play what's fun i don't want to you know get on and do chores after i just did like chores washing the dishes or cleaning the floor or whatever well, like we kind of fun. We kind of talked on the podcast or before the podcast too. How we're like, and it's just the chores are not fun. Like, if it was actually something engaging and fun to do, it would be one thing. But like, just getting on and like killing a bunch of like X number of things over and over and over again just isn't fun. And I actually come with a different issue. I've tried to get back into Destiny. I guess if it's been about a year, about a year ago now, when we were doing a couple raids every week or whatever. And that was a lot of fun, but like, 
you're coming at it from somebody that has and you're coming at it with the complaints of somebody that's kept up on it as somebody who didn't keep up on it because i kind of had to restart when i got my pc version because i started playing pc before they did the account thing so i had to like restart and stuff and it's just man like what they ask you to do the amount that they ask you to do to get even the guns you can still get to like be effective with it's just way too much and like my least favorite thing this game asks you to do is to go pvp but then every time you die you lose progress like that stuff just makes me want to like break my keyboard in half yeah and i and that is one thing and i feel sometimes they realize something's bad and they fix it and that is one thing that they have fixed with certain exotic quests for example is like oh if you die in pvp you get you know x amount of progress revoked from your ticket and i think some of those quests they've retrograded that or if they've rebalanced them so you get more progress than you typically lose even if you go like one to one in a game so as long as you're not doing like terrible you get progress but i I agree i don't think that's a very good way that they've ever done the quests in terms of like just thinking about i think it was when the forsaken expansion released um they're like oh hey you got to go talk to this spider guy on the shore and to continue the main story or no sorry i'm thinking of black armory which is the first uh dlc expansion to the forsaken um destiny experience that came out and it's like okay black armory just came out cool there's these forges you got to go there and you got to hunt down these like uh items and and forge these rare cool guns or whatever using the these like uh, technologies that have been like stolen by the fallen and we got to get them back and, and get this like exclusive armory back into the the guardian's hands and it's like okay go punch 75 guys it's like why <laughs> it's like what does this have to do with any of that it's like well i need you to punch 75 guys otherwise you can't like, that was one of the dumbest intro quests to all of the content they've ever done i'm like I appreciate that they're trying to do different stuff, but right. like, man, it's right. so dumb. And like, again, going back to PVP stuff, I hate like kill five Titans that are void. Like, and I, that might be like exaggeration, but it's just, it's such hyper specific stuff. And then if you get into a game that doesn't have anybody meeting that criteria, you're just kind of wasting time. Yeah. And uh, that is one reason i gave up on like the overwatch platinum i've I've been one trophy away from that forever but uh long story short somebody has to play symmetra not a lot of people play symmetra you have to kill three of her teleporters they've changed it so that she can put those down a lot more but ultimately like again people generally don't play her unless it's like they're the defending team and then as soon as you push off like the first point they change characters and so i've just kind of given up on it i tried a long time drove me crazy but uh, um, back to Destiny, I, I 100% agree. Like, and this year specifically, they, you know, they don't have the backing of Activision anymore. So they used to have help from like Vicarious Visions and High Moon Studios doing some of the the programming and stuff for them for some of these seasonal activities. Now it's offloaded onto them. But I mean, they still have like 300 some developers and. Their lead developer, Luke Smith, just came out saying that they're not working on Destiny 3 right now. They're still working on Destiny 2. And it's like, I know they're working on a new expansion, but at the same time, it's like, hasn't this kind of been the conversation for the past, like, two, three years now that, like, the game's not ready, don't force it out. Like, just finish the game. And this is kind of 
why I think me and a lot of the other players are sick of it right now is just they, they want to implement this season stuff. And I don't know if this is 100% because of Luke Smith, but he makes it very well known that he's a Scarab Lord, which means you played World of Warcraft way back in vanilla and had tons of free time and basically did chores all day every day until the gates of Ankaraj opened up. But you and didn't have to do that. <laughs> right. You didn't have to. But if you did, then it meant you wasted a lot of time doing that. And I, I know a lot of people see that as a, as a good thing and they got this exclusive title and they want to add things that like that to Destiny and like those you had to be there moments. And that's a thing they've actually talked about in their this week at Bungie updates, which they call the TWAB, as they're like, we want to add these moments to Destiny that people can talk about in the future. And it's like, you know, you already have those moments because so many people picked up Destiny 1 and just played the main story and was like, well, that game sucked and put it down and didn't even realize, like, dude, there's Vault of Glass. There's Crota's End. There's King's Fall. Like, there's these raids you didn't even see. And, like, all this other content after the main game. And, like, some people I convinced to try the game again. And after they found out about doing the raids, they're like, man, this game's awesome. I don't know why I didn't finish, like, doing the stuff. And it's like, well, you know, it's not really easy to get into. And, and that's... You know, it's kind of a bar to entry for a lot of casual players. To, but kind of to that point, like, how neat is it? Like, I, I feel like it got less and less as it went on because, I mean, if you were still playing Destiny, odds are you were waiting for more raids. But, I mean, like, we cleared Vault of Glass before Crota. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I would say, especially during Destiny 1, we were, in particular, pretty much always on top of things. We cleared any content that came out within a week of it coming out. So in, in World of Warcraft standards, that would be referred to as the cutting edge, which is when you clear any content within like a certain, like it's usually like two weeks to a month of it releasing. So we were, you know, probably in the top. And in World of Warcraft, that's usually like the top 5%, 3% of players. So we were well, definitely up there in the percentages of people clearing content. And while I have no doubt that we were in the top top percentage yeah like destiny i i also know like there's been a couple times where people haven't been able to clear a raid on day one and people like lost their mind that would never happen in world of warcraft even the toppest of guilds it takes them a couple days like so yeah i think it's definitely easier i think um i think destiny the record is still vault of glass I, i think it was like almost a whole day like something like 14 or 17 hours somewhere in there to clear but again a lot of that has to do with like you look at vanilla wow then and now like people are beating like you like you guys talked about before was it the hakar with the priests and they beat it in like five minutes yeah it's like a lot of it is just people know what they're doing now and and when destiny first came out you know a lot of people playing destiny were people who'd only played games like borderlands yeah, this and, was the first know, t- Destiny was the first time a ga- a first person shooter had mechanics like this. Right. They had raid mechanics and they're like, What the hell is going on? I don't know what to do and like so you had these people just trying to figure stuff out and a lot of the people who did succeed at like figuring out the fights and making guides and stuff were people who did come from like the MMO space. It's like I know Dado does Destiny played a lot of World of Warcraft and even like uh, the PvPer who's pretty famous is real crafty. He still actively plays a lot of World of Warcraft. I think specifically Classic right now. But I mean, so a lot of, you know, and that's why they, they kept 
kind of mixing saying oh well it's kind of an mmo we call it a shared world shooter but now they're moving towards the it is an mmo thing because they have a lot more emphasis on stat points and character building but um we digressed a little bit and uh it's not a bad thing but uh back on the the point earlier is that i think the the reason why people are so upset particularly right now because of what happened this year and like we were talking about is they want to create those you had to be there moments and you know for me i feel like that was just because we were there playing the game like vault of glass was there and a lot of people missed out on it because they didn't stick with the game and so if you want to do it now you got to go back and and like try to find people to do it which actually there's pretty good thriving destiny one community still because a lot of people really prefer um that content to what we have now i don't understand how they have never just dropped the destiny one raids at least into destiny two and they need to and and the division two just i mean granted you have to pay for it but they just did the warlords of new york update and basically all of new york's back in the game i mean you have to pay for it but at least all the content's basically in one place i don't think you can play like all of the the missions from division one in division two but it's basically the play space is back at least like we don't even have all of the locations back from d1 yet and I, and a lot of that is because they've been wasting a lot of their in my opinion they've been wasting a lot of their development time this year creating seasonal content that disappears after the season ends like they created the vex offensive which is this kind of six player raid light activity where you have like bare minimum mechanics such as oh there's this big boss and he has a force field but to knock down the force field you got to kill the ads and then after you kill the ad characters you can damage the boss and so it was kind of like baby's first raid for everybody to do together to get the the season's loot and it was only available for like that three months and as soon as that was gone the activity is gone the loot is gone so it's like you spent how many months and people's development time creating this just to rip it out of the game and it's like so one one thing they use in business terminology that i hear at my workplace sometimes more specifically from from my dad who's in the skilled trades um is they they talk about non-value added labor and and basically what that means is if you do all this work and it doesn't actually add to you know that the actual products value then the labor had no value added and so basically i see what they've been doing with these seasons is non-value added because if you didn't play during that season and you buy you know the season pass for this year well now all of that's non-value added because you paid for something that's not there it's not in the game anymore yeah and kind of like we were talking like with the scarab lord like you didn't have to do it so like if you want to have like you can have that feeling but like you know maybe like have the gun or whatever you're chasing still be there but maybe if you did it during the season give you a sparrow or something and have that go away right and i think I think that is their current mindset. I believe um, that's why Luke Smith made that short video explanation about what they're thinking about right now is because a lot of people are upset. And uh, and like you said, like the sparrows and the ships and the shaders, like they keep having these events and they keep tossing everything in the Eververse store, which is their microtransaction store. And before you used to get like cool sparrows or ships or whatever from completing challenges. And now it's just, oh, hey, the 
winter events out so now you can get a snowball ghost for like five bucks and it's like well why it's like why not just add it to the loot pool and it's like there's nothing to get in the loot pool and the the thing that they keep trying to do right now and and obviously people aren't having it anymore is they'll drop a new exotic with every one of these seasons and they'll be like oh you gotta log in and get this exotic right now otherwise you're gonna have to wait till the end of the year when we add it to the loot pool and it's kind of got to the point where it's like so you want me to log in and do very incredibly specific chores such as kill x amount of x bosses or punch so many dudes or kill this many guys with this specific ability in this certain way and i have to do so many of those every day for this many weeks to get this weapon and it's like you know what i'm just gonna wait till the end of the year when you add it as a random drop because that sounds really boring i completely agree so we've got destiny 2 first person looter shooter you've been playing the division 2 third person looter shooter mike tell me a little bit like what's division 2 doing better than destiny right now and what are maybe some things that division 2 still needs to live up to with destiny okay so right off the top of my head 100 percent things that they're doing better and i think jordan brought this up when you guys briefly talked about it in one of your episodes is the the mods for the guns yeah um like destiny i have a huge complaint with their i would say economy i guess someone in their development team like loves the idea of having this in-game economy and that's fine but when you have to basically do chores all day every day to get the materials that you need to upgrade or modify your guns just on a regular basis you eventually can't even use the things that they want you to use and division two isn't really like that i mean i haven't played the end game so maybe i'm wrong but as far as the content that i have played i've played through you know the normal game and part of the warlords of new york expansion and it's like oh hey i got this gun mod now i can just equip it to whatever gun i want whenever i want and in destiny 2 it's like oh you want to equip the the rampage streak mod to your gun well that's going to be this much glimmer and you're going to need oh that gun's like low level though so you're going to need to upgrade it and and this is one of my major gripes is when they first introduced infusion and um the Taken King expansion, it was wonderful. It's like, okay, now I can use these, you know, legendary shards or tokens or whatever it was back then to upgrade my guns. And I had all these tokens because we don't really need them anything for them for anything anymore because at first you used them to buy vendor gear to get your character leveled up. And then once you were leveled up to that point, you're like, okay, I don't really need these anymore. So now you could use them to make your guns level up from the new content. So you could bring like your your weaker guns forward and now it's like oh you're gonna need this many shards and this many cores and this many prisms and this many uh etheric spirals and whatever and it's and these other planetary materials and so it's getting to the point where the bungee developers are like you know we don't want to make all these new guns anymore because nobody uses them and it's like yeah dude because i gotta log in and do hours of bounties just to get the planetary materials to rank up the guns that I do like to use. You know, if there weren't so many currencies and so many consumables that I had to go through just to rank up my gear, then I would try some of the other guns that aren't as good as these ones. But since I have to do so much work just to keep my, you know, my inventory full of these materials, like I'm not even going to waste my time with the guns that aren't top tier because I just don't want to waste my time. It almost the the existence of a meta just kind of like, that it, it squashes like creative thinking 
when it comes to video games. Right. Like and you're always gonna find the thing that does the most damage and does the most work, and then if you do anything other than that, if it's not competitive in any way, then what's what's the point? Like exactly. it, even if it plays a little or feels a little differently. Like uh, there's there's a couple of classes like that in World of Warcraft where the numbers are so close together that it's literally just a difference between like how you want to play like arcane and frost they're really close together it, if you want yeah, to play arcane over one's the other yeah. yeah exactly and if you play like the other one better times, but this one's three yeah if if you play that better you're gonna do more damage then again fire mage is at the top of the rankings right now there's number one dps in the game and if you're not playing that then you're losing like eight or nine tiers of classes in between mm -hmm. like arcane and fire and if you're not playing fire, then you're doing that much less DPS, even if you like the play of Arcane or Frost better. Which, in fairness, yeah. who would? D D fire Mage is <laughs> the, the fun. And I, can see where, and I can see where World of Warcraft classes and characters in particular are a lot more complicated, especially because of all the crazy systems they have implemented right now. Yeah. Like Azerite armor and the, the corruption and all the other titan forging and stuff you have to worry about and oh yeah it's just insane and <laughs> and in destiny i feel like it's more simple i mean i could be wrong again but i feel like we've had a pretty good system going for a long time now like guns have certain archetypes those guns fall into like this gun this type of gun shoots this fast it does this much damage and the only thing you have to worry about is these are the perks that it can come with and i feel like the reason they're running into this issue like you said is is you know there's always going to be a meta people are always going to find out what does the most damage and and again i feel like bungie is wasting a lot of their development time making these seasonal activities that they're just taking out of the game later so it's non-value added content because you can't go back and play it even though you paid for it and yeah. and so now you're left with a situation where they're like well we don't have time to balance all of these guns we want less guns in the sandbox because it's too much work and and people only use these certain guns anyway and it's like okay well you know you can in the middle of a season nerf hard light and completely rearrange how the gun works in the pvp span sandbox specifically and balance it separately for pve and pvp so that the gun has fall off range differences in pvp that compared to the regular sandbox but you just can't be bothered to balance any of these other guns and it's like you know when you have an issue with a gun we're like man this gun's too good you should be asking yourself how can we make everything else better yeah not, how, how can, can we, make how this can we drag this through the dirt because i don't yeah. like it and i feel like that happens too much like they recently nerfed sniper rifles kind of out of nowhere and it and it feels a lot like back in destiny one like one of the developers was just straight up like yeah i was playing uh you know crucible on break with some of my coworkers and and my teammate was using arc blade or this enemy teammate was using arc blade and he killed a guy and he healed and i kept shooting him and shooting him and he killed another guy and healed and i, and I just did all this work shooting him and i couldn't kill him because he kept killing people and getting healed and it's like that's the ability dude maybe your teammate shouldn't be running into him and feeding him free health like you know, play smart. Don't nerf something just because you don't like it. And then basically after that, the subclass was completely unplayable. Like, there was no good aspect to it. And I think that's the way the game ended is that arc blade was just poop. And so now it's forever stuck like that. And 
and and i feel that's their mentality about a lot of things in destiny overall is just you know we don't want to do all this work on this we just want to nerf the thing and make it fall in line with everything else and it's like well obviously all the players are unhappy like maybe you should stop making all this content you're just ripping out of the game and rebalance you know the things we do like it almost it almost sounds like listening to you talk about the things you like about the division over destiny is it sounds to me almost like ubisoft in the division and this may be because they have other games they want you to buy and play as where bungie has destiny but it almost sounds like division and ubisoft they're more like of the path of exile thinking where they're okay with you running out of things to do and yeah. not playing anymore and then just come back when there is an update yeah, I can 100% see where that's the case. Uh, again, I haven't done the end game content in Division 2, so I can't vouch for that. Um, but, I mean, I can definitely see where it's like, oh, you get this mod and you have this mod, and you can just equip it and use it, and you don't have to worry about it. And same with, like, oh, you get this gun, now you have this gun. And I know that, for instance, when you start the Warlords of New York expansion, there's a huge power boost up. And I don't know if you can bring forward any of the old equipment because I think I read, I want to say I read that people were complaining that they didn't have some of the builds and stuff they used to have uh, specifically because they were talking about how the new raid is like ridiculous and difficult and they don't like it. And, and I think that's something they're still struggling with is I don't know if Division and Division 2 have ever done raids correctly and, and maybe because they think we're playing them wrong, but I just feel like they completely overtune the crap out of them. Just like in Division 1, like we had all really good gear, and it's like... Want to glitch hey, through a wall and shoot through it for three guy. hours, Mike? Hey, you may as well glitch through the wall and shoot at a tank for three hours, because otherwise you're going to spend three hours just killing the one elite shotgun guy who's coming at you. Like, you literally oh, wasted all your ammo. That was so like, disappointing. The Division 1 was so good until, until they released that update. Yeah, they released the first update, which killed all the crafting because all of... Basically, there was like a very small percentage of players. It might have been like 1% or 2% of players who basically did 200 hours of game content like the first couple weeks or a month of the game coming out. And they're like, I don't have anything to do now. I got all the gear. I crafted everything. And I just want to go in the dark zone and kill people, but I don't get any rewards for that. And basically, this vocal minority of the game persuaded massive to change it so that they're like oh all these people have all the best gear from crafting and we can't kill them so we we're removing that so that you have to do these other things to get gear now and you have to go in the dark zone because that's supposed to be the end game like cool well now you remove the way to get the good gear so now i have to go in the dark zone and get murdered by these guys who are invincible because they have all the good gear already and it was just kind of the breaking point for me as I would go in the dark zone after work and play for like three or four hours finding stuff just to be killed and have my stuff taken by somebody else who already has everything. And I'm like, why? I'm like, you just ruined the game. Like, I, can't, I can't even play against this guy. Like this one dude literally just kited me around like a city block with a riot shield and a pistol just teasing me because he's like, haha, you can't kill me. And like I would dump entire clips of ammunition into the dude just to get his health like halfway down and he'd pop one of his like a bajillion med kits that he had stored up and he'd shoot me like one time with this pistol and i'd have to duck for cover because i'm almost dead and and i mean i didn't have like bad gear at the time i was definitely close to end game geared i was just missing some of those last 
like high tier upgrades but it made all the difference and it's like I, nothing i could do could stop the guy and he just would he'd and i would think like okay he left i'm good and then i would like go hide and then run away and then here he comes again tracking me down just to, to mess with me and i'm like i don't want to do this man like these people are just out to be malicious and like their fun is ruining everybody else's good time and i and I, I couldn't understand why they gave in and like put stuff in that like forced everybody into the game they wanted to play and it I, you can definitely see like tons of people dropped off the game after that happened but i i hope that in the case of destiny 2 specifically that um they do stick to what they're saying i mean i kind of feel almost like ian has a costas or whatever his name is from blizzard where it's like you really can't trust what he says i feel kind of the same way a lot about what bungie says sometimes too because a lot i mean they regurgitate the same thing over and over like yeah we're listening we're 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 working on it and it's like okay well we've got people literally cheating on trials of osiris all day every day like and that's half of the content for this season and if you're on pc you can't play it because you literally run into a cheater like every time sorry Every time right. you, every time you, uh, you, you know, try to do the activity and it's incredibly frustrating and, and you're just like, you know what, I guess I'm just not going to play it because I, I can't do it because every time I play either there's going to be someone with a fully automatic sniper rifle flying around through the air or there's going to be a guy who infinitely revives when you kill him so the match can't end unless your team dies or there's going to be people who just DDoS you and disconnect you from the server. Yeah, and then I, I could speak for like um, like the the destiny differences and not the destiny too. From a novice's point of view, because I've I've played a little bit of each game uh, between the Division Two and and uh, and Destiny. And granted, there's a bit of bias because I love third-person shooters way more than first-person shooters, especially when it comes to like outer appearances and stuff like that. Like, uh. There's a big difference in like appearance-wise, division, mm -hmm. and uh, and yeah, because uh, they know you're destiny. you're going to be able to see your character. You got to be happy with your yes, character. Yes, not only in the that, it it you can change like your clothes in in the division too. Like Ooh. you can go and like you can go and pick up clothes out of just like loot boxes and stuff like that. I always yeah. get happy when that when that music pops up and this little like light blue icon is showing up on the screen on the loot and I'm like, I just I just picked up this stupid hat and I, I felt great about it. And then like you're you're building up this character and and destiny. It's something that threw me off immediately when I started playing Destiny. Uh, you start putting on all this cool armor and stuff like that and you can never see it until like you look at your like equipment screen and I'm like I guess I look cool to everyone else I yeah. guess and and in Division 2 like like you can put on armor and stuff like that like like knee pads and, and, and chest pieces and stuff like that and there is a visual look to it but it's it's it's, it's minor like you're wearing like a bulletproof vest like how much different can it get Right, like it, it's like, oh, this is a page one. Oh, this is a black one. And yeah, you can like mix and match and stuff like that. But uh, ultimately, it it doesn't really affect the way your character looks. And that's what I like. And also gameplay wise, like you you were touching on before, like replayability is like, oh, you could do this stuff if you want. You could also not do this stuff if you want. And it's 
and I think a difference that I have an opinion there is like I I just like being in the world of Division Two. Like just mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just be walking in the streets and I'll see something and I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna shoot like a, this guy's got a hostage and I'm just gonna free him. And mm-hmm. it it give me it gives me those like Spider Man, uh, like crawling around New York and beating up bad guys that are co- like popping up on my mini, on my mini map. Yeah, and it's just it's not. It's not busy work for me, and I get stuff from it, mm-hmm. but like I do it because it's fun, not because I have to. And exactly. I think like... if you enjoy the gameplay enough, that's that's the difference that pops up in your head. It's like, am I really doing this because I need to, and this is like something that will give me something that I want, or am I doing it because I genuinely enjoy the game? It's like it's like One Piece filler, like I'm gonna yeah. watch it because it's good, not because it's important. Like I yeah, like these characters, which is pretty rare for anime when they actually. Yeah, exactly. Like, I hate filler and everything, but when it comes to One Piece, I'm yeah, just like, like I, this I'm is good because I like it. You take that back, Piccolo and Goku driving cars is some of the finest anime ever made. I uh, Dragon Ball yeah, Z is actually he gets offended. So that's that's fine, but like I barely <laughs> stomached my way through like the Naruto to Naruto Shippuden oh. filler. Like I didn't. It is- I, at the time, I didn't know it was filler, and I was just watching it. I'm like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I thought he just left the village to go on, like, this big training thing, and now he's just, like, hunting down people's cats and making ramen and stuff. <laughs> like, And then later I found out it's filler, and I'm like, well, I've only got, like, ten more episodes of it, so I may as well just finish it. But, like, I think it one is, of the most yeah. egregious was Bleach's filler because Bleach they, they fell off of infinite. doing the anime, and it's so bad. It is infamous for its filler. I heard it's coming back though, so hopefully, you know that'll be good. But anyway, well, it, it's good when you like you can trick someone into liking something. I was about it's to like say you never knew you wanted this, but here you go, and you're like, I this this isn't what I wanted, but I like it. Thank we you. we are recording later in the week, so we don't have to worry about time. But I feel like we could literally talk about Destiny Two and the Division Two for four hours on its own so let's wrap that up and move on to spyro reignited yes i agree um i will say real fast uh for the summary uh of destiny and division together like number one both games should have the mod system where if you have the mod you can just equip it number two like jordan just said about the the public events or like uh things that are going on in the world around you they need to feel like something matters and that you're going to get something for doing it. And I think uh, Division does it better. Like in Destiny, you never see like any NPCs out in the world. And that's been a complaint since day one for me of Destiny 1 is, you know, where's the other Guardian NPCs who are supposedly, you know, out protecting the world? Why aren't they out here needing my help? Why aren't they fighting with me? Like, do it have yourself them, have them out there like hiding behind a barricade getting like shot to pieces champion like, and then get if like you want to keep the resources in the game where you need a bunch of resources start dumping resources on people for doing those events and then uh, uh, number two would be or i guess number three would be just um less fomo less seasonal stuff make all the content playable in a game that's about a grind let people grind when they want to grind use the soft progression model that animal crossing uses it's so much better for that type of game and i guess overall that would be my like three main points that they need to work on do you think real quick though before we move on to spyro do you think that part of the reason that works for animal crossing though is like 
people who buy Animal Crossing know that they're getting in it for the long grind. And I mean, I suppose at this point, Destiny 2 people would know that, but like... Oh, yeah. I would definitely say that anybody who's a part of the Destiny community has to realize that they're a hardcore gaming community. Like, I don't know anybody who plays Destiny, like, quote-unquote, casually. And there's a YouTuber called Aztec Cross who who does Destiny, and he did a kind of decent video explaining it. Like, it's like you don't go in the Call of Duty community and, you know, expect people to log in and do, like, eight hours of chores a week. They just log in and play Team Deathmatch all day. It's like in Destiny, players log in to do chores just to get the things they need to do those activities, and that in of itself is a quote-unquote like hardcore gaming community. Like People go way out of their way in this game to do random stuff to get the things they want or the things they need to do the content. And that just isn't there in other casual quote-unquote games. All right, Mike, I am very interested in what you have to say on Spyro Reignited because I played through the first game and platinumed it when it came out and I started the second game but there was a very specific reason I stopped and I want to hold that reason since you've played more recently I want to see if you mention it too but go ahead tell talk to me about Spyro Reignited you've been playing one and two you have written down here yeah I um kicked off my backlog busting with a fun easy platinum which was Spyro reignited the first one uh that game was yeah, really reignited fun. trilogy is like the overall like the whole yeah. package it comes with yeah. one two and three yep one two and three uh and uh I, I did the first one first and then i i took a break and did some other games i didn't want to do them all at one time because i figured these are going to be like short fun little bursts of enjoyment uh and like nostalgia and i didn't want to blow it all at one time i wanted to sprinkle them in here and there in case i had like a bad game which in case i did at one point and i was like i need something fun and quick to just like get me happy and uh and that's just kind of how it is i know you guys did the burnout episode and you're like how do you like treat burnout and for me that's like play a short fun quick little nostalgia game sometimes other times like you guys said is just a not game at all but for me i was making sure to save some of these games that were like little treats to to get me i back do that too cash. absolutely you're like, hey, I just ate a bunch of cabbage, so here's here's a brownie. You know? <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed the first fire. It was super fun. Uh, I had very little issues doing the platinum trophy. Uh, the only thing that gave me like any trouble at all was, I think, the supercharging and the tree chop. Yeah, tree there chop. there was definitely as opposed to crash, there was a little more like nonsense work. I call them in trophies because like crash was relatively straight through. But it definitely wasn't bad. Like, it didn't make you want to, yeah. like, not play anymore. Yeah, the, the, I agree. It definitely wasn't bad. Um, a lot of it was just, like, either A, like, fun little challenges to do during the level to get the trophies, or B, uh, and more so in the case of the second game, is a lot of the trophies were specifically tied to the challenges that you had to do to get, like, all the collectibles in the level. Um and in two, I will say, I think I enjoyed two more overall, but there were certainly some things I didn't like about two as opposed to one. Um, two introduces so, that greedy little money bags. Yeah, money, yeah. money bags. I almost wonder if he's the true villain <laughs> in Ripto's rage. Oh yeah, R- Ripto. Ripto's a great guy in comparison. 
Yeah, like he almost a hundred percent like lets Ripto take over, and even in, in like the introduction to the third world, he's he pretty like, much sells it. Ripto shows up with a bag of bombs. He's like, "Yeah, I convinced Moneybag to sell me these, and now I'm yeah. gonna use them to steal all your gems again." And I'm like, "Great." <laughs> and like, I guess there's more game for me to play, which isn't a bad thing. But it's also like, you gotta have some common sense, dude. Like the dude kicked you out of your last mansion. Now you're going to sell him bombs. Guess what's going to happen? He's going to kick you out of your next mansion, which is exactly what he does. Then you got to pay the dude more gems, which almost makes me wonder if it wasn't all set up from the beginning. Like, oh, you conveniently have this bridge that only you know how to unlock, and I got to pay you to use it. And oh, you got to happen to have this submarine in this area full of robotic sharks. Hmm, I wonder who built those robotic sharks. Probably the only person with a bunch of money who could afford it. This game's great, man. <laughs> at least at the end of the game, uh, your your friends uh, beat him up and take your money back for it. I remember that too when I finished it <laughs> back when I was a kid. I was like, oh, this is yeah, Alora and it all over again. And, Alora just like, and Hunter beat him up and take your money back and give it to you. So, so. the issue I ran into was Spyro Two, and I never got around to Year of the Dragon, which is the third game. So my biggest issue I had with Spyro Two. And part of it's just the way the game's designed. So it, it's just, like, the overworld takes place in a castle. So, yeah. like, nothing, like, you don't get, like, a a visual sense of progression, which you do in the first one because you're going to all these different worlds and stuff. Like, yeah, and I so things just got very samey. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I was enjoying it, and I will definitely get back to it at some point. Like, I think Toys for Bob did a fantastic job. Like, it's such a minor complaint. But especially having just gone from Platinuming Spiral 1, going straight into a playthrough with the intention of Platinuming Spiral 2, I was just like, eh, there's just not enough going on here right now visually to keep me interested. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, I don't know if the castle was inspired maybe by the success of things like Super Mario 64, which took place pretty much in a castle. But again, there's a lot more quote-unquote visual progression in that game, like when you unlock a new corridor of the castle, that corridor looks vastly different from the last one. And like you said, in the first Spyro game, it's like this overworld looks completely different from that overworld. And I think the first world in Spyro 2 did it the best just because like, yeah, you're in a castle, but it's full of vegetation and grass. And it's almost like an orchard inside of like a greenhouse or something. And then like you learn to swim and you go through this swimming tunnel and now you're in this like tile filled temple and with water and, so you got that kind of progression, but then you get to the next level and it's just a castle and every part of it's just a castle. And then the last level is like, oh, this is just some snow and ice and then a castle on top of it. And I, I can see where that's boring. I would say that was lesser of my complaints. I would, But this is more of just a personal tick of mine and that is backtracking. I hate backtracking. I, it's like if there's a thing there, I want to do it now. I just want to get it out of the way. I'm that player who's like, oh, you got to go save the princess. And it's like, oh, but my cabbages. And I'm like, don't worry, I'll get those cabbages for you. They're right there. And then I'll go get them. <laughs> and then it's like, but they're like, oh, but you can't get the cabbages because you need to upgrade to walk through fire found in level five. And I'm like, but then I got to come all the way back here, bro. Just just, <laughs> just do it yourself. Just, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in the same boat as you. In fact, most of it, like almost all my complaints with the, uh, for battle for azeroth right now it's just like just give us just throw us a bone man like, like 
they they write it down in the lore, like if you read like the quest stuff like that, like just teleport me back there. Like, sorry, adventurer, I don't have enough. I don't have enough magic to teleport us. Azeroth wounds are too great. I'm just, yeah, just, just do it, man. Like, and there's, <laughs> and there's backtracking done right and backtracking done wrong, in my opinion. Like, absolutely. Obviously, obviously, the Metroidvania style games do it really well. They coined pretty much the whole term backtracking. Pretty much evolved straight out of those games. Same with sequence breaking, and it's. You know, you backtrack because, hey, I got this power up and now I can go through this door. Yes, so You absolutely. walk through that door and all you find is some missiles. You get kind of like, why did I come back here? I can just find missiles over there. And yes, if, if you make it so that like you, you can open see that the door and there's a whole new section of this area yeah. that you haven't found, then cool. Like, uh, and, you know, games, I can think all the way back to like Pokemon. Like in Pokemon, it's like, oh, I just learned how to surf. And now I can go down to this place and hold, oh, there's all these islands over here and I can go in the islands and you can explore into the islands. And then you got this nice island area that you can go into or this cave system. And then, oh, you get like halfway through the cave system, which isn't, you know, like a tiny amount of content. It's actually pretty big. And I mean, I guess it depends at the time when you're a kid. And there might be a giant iceberg in there. Right. And then you got to go get rock smash and come back. But. You know, like usually, the, usually the victory road in most games, specifically the older games, had like a second section to it. Uh, I know, like in Gold and Silver, they started doing that, where you would go back to Victory Road after um, completing the Pokemon League. I can't remember if it was the first or second time, but you unlocked Mount Silver, and now you had this whole oh. like second half to Victory Road that was this huge mountain that you could go through and climb through. And and then I'm thinking specifically of like in a the third generation Pokemon games, Ruby, Sapphire, Emerald, you had like the, um, I don't remember exactly what they were called, but it was the, the sea caves where you could find the, uh, uh, Celio and, and, uh, snow run that evolve into Glalie and Walrus. And they were only available yeah. at certain times because of the tide. Yes. And you changed oh, my goodness. by going through the level and like hitting certain switches or like dropping boulders through the floor. And the other thing crazy. is, you could also get like specific items you would go through i think it was maybe it was called the shoal caves because that you had to collect shoals yes, it was the shoal cave that's to what get it was. the the shell bell and you would craft this bell item and basically it's the specific item you could only get from there by playing the little mini game in the cave and oh my god and, I'm gonna when, you, right and now. when you did damage it healed you and you're like oh my goodness and so it was like a huge payoff because you're like, man, I went back to this cave. At first I thought nothing was here, but then I found out, oh man, I got this TM and now I can change the water levels. And it turns out it wasn't just one cave. It's like three or four layers of cave. And then you yeah. keep going down and you're like, oh, and there's new Pokemon in here. And oh, and there's this item I just got. And so it's like, that's backtracking done awesome. In my opinion, backtracking done bad for me is like Spyro 2. It's like, oh, you can't do this until you learn to climb. I'm like, okay, and I come back, and I'm like, I learned to climb, and they're like, cool, hit that switch, and I hit it, and they're like, all right, you're done. I think it's setting expectation. Like when I picked right. up when I picked up Star Wars: Fallen Order last year, I knew that I was getting into a backtracking game. When you pick up Spyro Two, especially coming straight off of Spyro One, you're expecting a 3D platformer. Yeah, 3D <laughs> platformer collectathon, and they're like dangling this thing right off the cliff right there, and you can see it, and you're like, yeah, that's that last gem I need, but gotta climb climb now i gotta, now I gotta, gotta play through x amount of the game just to like 
waste so many minutes of loading screens to come back and get that thing. And I mean, some people love it, but in my opinion, that's backtracking done wrong. I can't knock it too hard because it is a remake of a, of a very older game where, you know, collect-a-thons were kind of the, the new up-and-coming thing at the time. But, you know, I feel, you know, they could have done better. I'm not saying they we've, had to We've grown it. since then. We could just we yeah. could just leave it at that. It, I, I'm saying, I will say, if they decide to make a new Spyro game for, like, PS5, do backtracking <laughs> done right and have, like, an awesome overworld. And when you get the climbing power up, make it so that there's, like, a whole mountain that you can climb on now once you climb up that ledge instead of there just being, like, a switch to hit or, well, or a lamp to light or something. Like, a new game like this, it'll be interesting to see because right now the thought is there's the rumor that the new Crash Bandicoot game is coming out that sold well i don't know how well spyro sold i know it wasn't as well as crash but i don't have exact numbers um it'll be interesting to see though because the team that did the crash remake as we'll talk about in the news is doing another game right now so the rumor is if that crash rumor the rumor on top of the rumor the rumor is if that crash rumor is real it's probably toys for bob who did this remake is probably making the new crash game yeah, and they, they make good games, too. Uh, like, not only did they do the Spyro remake, but Toys for Bob is also probably famous for doing Skylanders. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how much you guys play Skylanders. I do, in some ways, think it's a kind of a shameless cash grab because, obviously, you get all these toys and you show the little kids, like, oh, hey, man, you know, it's a toy and you can <laughs> play the game with your toy. And it on one aspect it's really cool because it's like oh hey look at these amiibos i can get my favorite characters in a statue form and they add things to my game and then you find out oh well it's only for like this one game and it's only for like this alternate costume and nintendo said they were going to have functionality for these and they just like aren't upholding that end of the bargain and now i have all these amiibos that don't do anything the big thing for nintendo i think and i think part of the reason amiibo are still the thing that exists in this whole toys for life thing is like for Nintendo, it's just a matter of like, how else are you buying Nintendo like toys at all? Yeah, you know, like Disney, yeah. you can go buy a doll or whatever. Or and Skylanders was just made up random stuff. But like Nintendo, it's like if I want like a statue of Mario, it's easy to go buy an amiibo. <laughs> right, and I don't see why they don't cash in on it too. Like Skylanders, I played specifically Skylanders Imaginators, and I actually thought it was a good game. I, I will say I don't like that they advertised in the game like, oh, hey, this is the wind level. A great character for the wind level is Feather McFeatherson. You can go buy him now. Uh, Feather uh, McFeatherson, like, homie. <laughs> and I don't know if that's obviously not a real name. For I know, character. I know. But, I mean, like, not only are you paying probably, like, $60 for the game plus the pad plus the, the like, figures that come with it, which is okay, but then like, now you want me to pay fifteen dollars for Feathers McFeatherson <laughs> just to play this like bonus win level, and you want me to pay fifteen dollars oh, for that's dirty light, light shade the robot to play this light level, and it's like and it's to kids too. And that I, is really yeah. Gross. And when you do it to children, and it's in the game showing an advertisement of this uh... character doing this cool stuff, and he's like, "Mom, I need him to play the level." It's like on one hand, it's cool because you're buying them a toy that they can play with and they can put it in their game. But on the second hand, I think it's kind of cheap and underhanded and dirty of Activision to, I definitely 100% think it's them who influenced on them because we didn't see anything like that in the Spyro remake, which they made. 
and they're just like, oh yeah, look at all this stuff you can get, but you got to go buy it. And <laughs> it's like, okay, the game right. itself was fun though. I played it, I platinumed it. It was a fun game. I I like the idea of like I got this cool statue of this figure. I can drop it on the pad. Now it's in the game. I can play with it. Uh, I specifically the only reason I got into the game was because they had a Crash Bandicoot set of figures. Uh, I wonder if you can still get them. I should have bought those just to have. Uh, yeah, I think I got to look. I, I might still have them because uh, it, it was definitely one of those games that I was like, man, once I play it and beat it, I'm probably never going to play it again. But not only did they have the Crash Bandicoot figure yeah, he, and the Neo Cortex figure. He's definitely but, upmarked, but it's only like 30 bucks. I should probably buy it before it gets yeah. more expensive But if for you the two-pack. Yeah, but not only do you get those figures, but I believe it also unlocks an entire like expansion world. Oh, I honestly do not care about the game. I'm not buying the base. I just want this yeah. Crash and Cortex. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, and I just think it's cool. Like, I don't understand why Nintendo... Obviously, they have a game called Nintendo Land already, but why not make, like, Nintendo World and just have it be, like, Skylanders, which... If, for those of you who don't know, the gameplay is basically kind of like Baby's first Diablo, so like action looter game. And I don't know if this is what the first ones were like, but the Skylanders Imaginators was like this, where you it's like you find gear, you equip gear to your character, your character um, levels up and gets talents, and you've got a couple different talent trees you can choose from, and then you can like reset your level and go down the other talent tree if you want to, if you get bored of the other one. and. For example, the Crash character has one talent tree that's all about spinning and like whirling around TNT boxes, and then the other talent tree is all about the Uka Uka mask or whatever his name was, and and you all about like just getting the masks and and like using them instead of lives and stuff. So like you can actually play Crash in like Skylanders where you only have like one hit without your masks, and so you start with oh. like, masks and you get use the masks and and whatnot but anyway like it's fun it's simple it's easy it's it's got flavor uh specifically the part of the reason uh these go hand in hand is because that's basically where spyro exists nowadays like his ip is in the skylanders yeah. world well, and it's important like skylanders is the world of spyro like they mentioned that in spyro one that you're in skylanders yes and and um the thing that's kind of sad about it is like the game is good. I just wish it wasn't so cash grabby. I wish they would release the game with a base set of characters that would let you do all the things in the game. And like, if they want to advertise their other characters and figures, that's fine. I just wish there was a, a set roster of characters built into the game where it's like, Hey, you've got one character of each of the elements and you're good to go. But if you want to go buy, you know, the figures and then, add them to the game you're more than welcome to do that i think that would be perfect and again i don't know why nintendo doesn't cash in on this because uh, they obviously did some of it with starlink they had like the Star Fox uh, thing you could add into that and again they could make a nintendo world where you just drop your mario amiibo on the on the gamepad and you've got like three or four basic abilities like a jump a fireball or a whatever and and you just run through these kind of like Spyro or Crash theme-esque levels where you jump and collect and puzzle solve and beat up random bad guys and get like tokens and loot and go back to the overworld and spend them to unlock new levels and stuff. 
I think people would go crazy for that. Okay. So, let's move on then. Uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2, Mike, t- talk to me. You playing the multiplayer? You playing the single player? What's going on here? I did both. Um, <laughs> I think the single player, I played it for about an hour. Hot garbage. So, here's, here's my opinion on the single player. Um, <laughs> it's not good. Um, hey, you came on and said it. I, I can say, from having played all of it, plus the they added, like, think it was three missions after because obviously when the game first came out people are like you didn't finish the story like you put like a huge cliffhanger here and didn't even finish and it's like so they they put a finish on that and hashtag spoiler alert if you don't want to know the ending pause now and skip forward about five seconds they cliffhanger again (laughs) and then i don't think you should spoiler that i think you I think you're saving people a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah, they do it again, and it's so frustrating. And I'm like, why? Like, and the worst part is like, the idea of the overall story is a good one. Like, you have finally, like, finally, you're a character from the Empire who's lived as an Imperial in the Imperial like homeworld. Who's like, yeah, I love the Empire screw the rebels and the empire is so great and then basically the whole story is that they see like the what the empire is doing to other people and be ashamed if that changed in three missions yeah yeah literally like two missions later your your father is like the main admiral of the current fleet because the death star just blew up so everybody above his command is now taken out and now he's taking orders from a robot with palpatine's face on it and he's basically (laughs) like i know you're my daughter but I devoted my whole life to the Empire, so I'm going to blow up our home planet. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> and so your character's like, well, I guess I'm a rebel now. Because <laughs> I don't want to blow up my home planet. And <laughs> I, I so watched like, something the other day. It's like, that's all the bad guys in Star Wars want to do is blow up planets. Like, what is it? <laughs> right. and, and at the end of the game, too, your dad's just like... You like go back to save him because the ship he's on is blowing up because you're blowing it up and you're like dad come on we gotta get out of here and he's like no i'm sorry for what i did but i gotta blow up on the ship now captain <laughs> must go down with gotta the go ship. down with the ship devoted my whole life to the empire i'm not gonna stop now it's like yeah i made some mistakes so let's make some more you know <laughs> I, I just love so the first battlefront you know they were all like this doesn't have a single player it's garbage it's like nobody buys these kind of games for the single player. We're all about the multiplayer. And I played at the end of last year. This is a good package nowadays. Yeah. Right. And and I agree with that. And and probably the last thing I'll say about the story as we move into that is is they had a good premise for the story and you can one hundred percent tell that they rushed the crap out of it and we're just like, get it done, hit the main points and move on because it's like you get the Imperial side of things but you get like no time to be the Imperial and you get like no time to be like, see the good things that the empire does for people in the empire. And then you see like the bad things that they're doing. And then you see, Oh wait, maybe they're treating our people bad too, who aren't just the elite. And then, and then your father gives you like the ultimatum. And then you're like, man, my dad's crappy too. Okay. I'm a rebel now. And then you meet Luke Skywalker. Who's all like, you know, 
the difference is you had a choice and like he's like well you just killed all those imperials and he's like well they didn't give me a choice they shot at me and he's like you didn't shoot at me you asked me for help so i helped you and he's like huh and then you're like i guess i'm, I'm like Skywalker now. And, then, <laughs> and then uh so it's like all so rushed it's like it could have been really cool if you took the time to to like actually space it out and put some content in between these major things but just having it one mission after another where like characters are making these huge life altering decisions it's like with no context in between is just like i know the thing that just happened is really crappy but it's like you can do that now it's like okay here we go and then it's just yeah the, the multiplayer though is where it's at 100 uh uh the story took maybe like six eight hours to get through it wasn't terrible but again it was super rushed it's nothing to write home about if you skip it is this a game you're playing on playstation 4 a quick question yeah yeah i did, I did the platinum trophy i did all the, the stuff because i want to play this game with somebody right now like i want to like really give it a fair shake again but i i have it on pc so <laughs> i actually enjoyed the multiplayer enough that i would probably buy the pc version just to play multiplayer oh that that's awesome and wait i, I mean wait kind of too because like you can get it for like i picked it up for like yeah. five bucks last year like it was yeah they recently had the may the fourth sale and it was like 20 bucks so and and considering they just had their final dlc free dlc update at that uh i would say it's probably worth 20 bucks easily um because unlike a lot of games battlefront 2 um absolutely would not have bought it when it first came out story mode was super rushed wasn't finished microtransactions galore and pay to win ones and and it was just no absolutely not but they repealed all of that no longer in the game the only loot crates you get now are from completing challenges you earn them all of them uh so there is a little uphill struggle in upgrading your star cards but the best part is now there's cooperative versus ai mode and you can rank up all your stuff in cooperative versus ai so if you go get stomped by level 800 darth mcdoobies which actually happened to me then you can go to co-op versus ai and and fight the robots and rank up your stuff and have a good time and then go back to actually playing against other people once you have a fair chance when your stuff's upgraded so you're like oh man why is this guy got like a level 500 darth vader character probably because he played a bunch of co-op versus ai so now you can do that and go get your level 500 darth vader and come back and torque on him and that's exactly what i did and i had a great time also, the, the Ewok game mode is really fun, too, that they just added not too long ago. Um, yep, yep. Plus, it it's is a, essential. For, for people who haven't <laughs> played it, it's essentially like um, zombies from Halo or infected from Call of Duty. Oh, my God. Like, one or, like <laughs> one or two people start as, like, the Ewok, and it's nighttime on Endor, and you're the stormtroopers <laughs> who've been sent to Endor. Oh, my and, God. Like, they're, and this is like right after um, the rebels like win, and they're supposed to be pulling out the stormtroopers, and the Ewoks are like having their party. So you got to survive until the, the ship gets <laughs> extracted. My God, there's a bunch uh, of like drunk slash high Ewoks celebrating, trying to kill stormtroopers. And you literally uh, have like a flashlight because it's dark outside, and that's your only light source. And the Ewoks are hiding in the darkness, and they have like um, sonar that they can turn on to see like infrared. <laughs> So they're hunting you like predator in the darkness. And, like, 
as they kill you, that person becomes an Ewok. And so then more people <laughs> become Ewoks hunting the stormtroopers and it just turns into this huge mess of like, there'll be stormtroopers running off into the distance trying to get away. There'll be like groups of them like back to back just gunning into the grass trying to get the Ewoks and they're just coming out of the darkness, spearing them in the butt or throwing their, what I call their like juju flies at people. And then they also have a, a, a battle horn that makes them, I think, do more damage uh, if someone plays their horn. So you'll just be hiding in the dark and you'll like be flicking on your flashlight, which can only be on for like a certain amount of time. And you'll be turning it back off to try to save battery and, and charge it back up. And you'll be like, man, where is he? Where is he? And if you're wearing like a headset, easily the best way because you can start hearing like footsteps coming around you. So you're like, oh my God, I hear footsteps behind me. And then you'll just hear from the little Ewok horn and then just a <laughs> horde of like, Ewoks. Yeah, nah. <laughs> and you're just ah! and you're trying to get them down. you're getting stormed by these little teddy bears with spears killing you but then you get to be an Ewok and kill people so it's great awesome that might be the best sales pitch I've heard for a video game I was about to say like I'm I'm survive after a certain amount of time uh, one of the Imperial like troop ships comes down and that's the end game goal for the stormtroopers is to get on the ship after I make sure I have enough room on my computer to save a nine-hour podcast, I'm going to um, re-download Battlefront 2 and play that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a super fun game mode. I, and uh, just the multiplayer in general, I would say, is super worth it. If you can get the game, I, I bought it for like $25 on sale. And then like a month later, it went on sale for 20 bucks. like Aaron had recently. I, I seriously, on PC, I picked it up for $5. So. Yeah, and all of the content was added for free, which they promised from the beginning after the mess up at the beginning with the pay-to-win microtransactions they re- removed, and they have stuck to their word since then. So 100%, I would say it's worth it. They stuck to their word. They fixed the game. The single player is nothing to write home about, but if you got like eight hours to kill and you want like the new trilogy Star Wars level of storytelling, there you go. You got some more Star Wars. But Do you want bad Star Wars? Pick this up. Rebellions are built on hope. Now it was worth it. Michael Topainer, a game I have nothing to say about, but I'm very interested in. I've always loved the art style on this being like a Studio Ghibli game, like kind of thing. Uh, Nino Cooney, Wrath of the White Witch. Fantastic. Uh, you know, Thank I've you. I was heard... just getting up to put my glass away. You're just fantastic. I was like, oh no, you got to keep going, please. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's. The best way to describe this game would be something like Final Fantasy or Dragon's Quest meets Pokemon. And in terms of like the overall, like what you do in the game, you've got an overall kind of like fantasy storyline of, oh, hey, I got to go to this fantastical world. There's magic and monsters and, and so on and so forth. The game is set in 1940s, like Detroit, Michigan. They call it Motorville. Uh, you're this little kid named Oliver. Um, you and your buddy, uh, he's like a mechanic building a car, and he wants to make the best car, and you, you both want to like grow up to be like car mechanics and car designers because you live in Motor City. And and, and then all of a sudden... Is like, the prelude to Final Fantasy Fifteen? Maybe. And then... Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's the precursor to Nino Kuni too. But uh, no, what ends up happening is... Um, you're like quote unquote the chosen one and this evil witch from another world's like oh we can't have that and so she 
tries to kill you and it goes wrong and you're testing out your buddy's new car car breaks you fall into a river and start drowning and your mom all of a sudden realizes you snuck out of the house because she pieces together like things you were saying earlier about her going to bed early and stuff and so she goes looking for you and she sees you like drowning and she like dives into the water to save you well your mom has like heart problems and dies of a heart attack because she saved your life uh, and you put her through like a huge stressful encounter. And so now you have no mom and you cry and you're, <laughs> you cry on this doll and the doll comes to life because you have like magic. Food. And that doll is one of the characters who's going to be with you the whole game. He's awesome. His name is Mr. Drippy, Lord High Lord of the Fairies. It's quite tidy, ain't he? And uh, as a terrible impression, but he's awesome. Uh, he's great. He's huge comic relief. Uh, he could definitely use his tidy tears ability way more. I think he only used it for me like one time in the whole game. And uh, but anyway, point is, you find out that your world is not the only world, and it's interconnected with other worlds. So this game has kind of the metaverse mentality, um, and specifically, they have this idea called a soulmate, where not like you meet the person you're in love with, but your soul is intertwined with someone else's soul on another plane of existence. And so the fairy tells you like your mom might not actually be 100% dead because whatever happens to your soulmate in one world affects the soulmate in the other world. And if you can fix that soulmate in one world, you can fix them in the other world. And so this kind of becomes the premise of the game going forward is like, okay, so maybe if I go to this new world, I can find the soulmate of my mom and help her and that will somehow bring my mom back and so you like little 12 13 year old boy believe this idea and you find out you're a wizard harry and you go to the new world where it's basically a magic world and long story short uh wizards have familiars familiars end up becoming your little battle buddies they're like your pokemon in the game uh you can catch them uh i wouldn't really say catch them they call it taming and uh basically instead of getting like pokeballs for example and throwing them and catching them you later on get another character in the game who specializes in taming familiars and you use them to serenade them into becoming your friend uh and the way that happens is each of them just have a percent chance at the end of a battle when you beat them up they're like hey you're really strong i want to be on your team now and then you can accept them if you want um story is really good awesome story uh tons of stuff to do in the game the biggest thing about the game that i like is there's tons of creatures 250 plus and more to see you could say uh familiars in the game uh that's including obviously that just like pokemon they can evolve or what they call metamorphing in this game uh you start with a base guy and that it evolves twice but the final form can vary between two different ones so each familiar has like four different total forms that it could be in uh and then throughout the game oliver the main character uh goes on a quest to become a great sage or wizard for example because he needs to do that to fix the world so that he can find his mom's soulmate so that he can save her to save his mom uh and you go on this huge quest and then later you find out that the person who did this to you was the white witch and then you're like hey we should probably stop her and then you go to stop her and then yeah so 
definitely total like Final Fantasy Dragon Quest esque storyline mixed with Pokemon style gameplay. Uh, it's not really a hundred percent turn based. I'd say the the gameplay is more kind of like I wouldn't say like Dragon Age a hundred percent because there are instanced battles, but they put you on like a little field that you move around on actively and you kind of hit buttons in time with what's going on. Um, Okay, interesting. Um, Okay, yeah. Uh, Neat. So, moving on to a game I can say something about. Marvel Spider-Man, Michael. Still digging through this, huh? (laughs) So, I've never played the DLC for this. I'll admit that. I have not either. Okay, so we're we're coming at it with a neutral spot. I played through the I I've beaten the main game, but not mm-hmm. anything extra. Talk, talk about it. I I haven't played it. I, I got I I bought it the day it came out because Alexis was out of town the day it came out. So I was like, this is awesome. I played it for like eight hours that night, and then I like put it aside for like probably like six months, and then got back to it and finished it. Yeah, I had a super fun time with it. Um, uh, I love Insomniac, the developers who made the game. They do a great job on pretty much any game that they touch. Uh, they have a really good balance of not only gameplay, but also storytelling, and I believe humor. And I think that was a perfect fit for the Spider-Man universe. Uh, I specifically love their Ratchet and Clank series. And when it was first announced that they were doing a Spider-Man game, I was like, oh my gosh, perfect. Like, Peter Parker's Aww. all into, like, the comic relief and the quips. And I and mean, so it's Ratchet, and it's going to be perfect, and it was perfect. With Insomniac, you, you mentioned liking those two things. I love those two series, too. Like, it's awesome that Insomniac is a two-studio company, now owned by Sony, who own the video game rights to Spider-Man and Ratchet & Clank. I mean, odds are they, they are two... They're a two-team studio, I should say. Odds are they're working on sequels to both the Ratchet and Clank reboot and oh, the Spider-Man sure game. Because I, I know the movie didn't perform well, but the game performed phenomenally. And uh, Insomniac also originally made Spyro, so again, that's why that's so good. I mean, yeah, they don't have that anymore. Obviously, that's with Activision, but uh, I wish they could get that back. Uh Ratchet and Clank and Spider-Man, they probably don't need anything else, but I would love to see them try their hand at a new IP. I think, wasn't it Knack? Didn't they make Knack? They did not make Knack. They made Sunset Overdrive. Okay. I was going to say, Knack was a letdown. No, Knack was a Sony IP. Like, um, Mark Mark Cerny, who, like, makes the consoles, had a hand in Knack. Because I, I think they said somewhere, like, someone who worked at Insomniac or they, like, modeled the game after Ratchet and Clank's art style in a way. And I was like, this did not live up to expectations. And But, yeah, Sunset Overdrive. I've got that on Xbox. Want to play it. I'm super down to do that at some point soon. I haven't touched much of my Xbox that, for reasons. That game is but, in such a fascinating limbo. Real quick, before we go too much more on Spider-Man, Sunset Overdrive is insomniac owns the ip but microsoft owns the publishing rights and insomniac is now owned by sony so sony owns a company who owns an ip that can only be published by microsoft (laughs) yeah it's like in limbo it's kind of sad i I wish exclusives weren't a thing but here we are (laughs) i mean 
at least with Xbox, they're releasing all their future games also on PC. So I was gonna say, stop buying, yeah. stop buying consoles, folks. PC. PCs is where yeah. it's at. Yeah, I would love to see them update Sunset Overdrive to be on PC, and I would love Sunset Overdrive 2, which I know Microsoft. I, I'm pretty sure there's been a report before that they've asked them to do it, and and Insomniac said they would do it, and I think it's just a matter of. You know, basically, how much money they're going to have to give Sony to have. Ah, that's not happening now. Sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Spider-Man's great. I, I love the Insomniac develop uh, developers. They've never really let me down with any of the games they've made. Um, I thought Spider-Man was the perfect fit for their design style and their, their writing style. And it definitely hit home. It was a great game. It was serious, but it was also funny. It also um, really... It should be. 100% landed the feel of the web slinging, and that is probably the number one aspect of any Spider-Man game, is you got to get the web slinging right. And they destroyed it. And I knew they would get it right 100% from playing, like, Ratchet and Clank. There's a lot of aerial movement in those games. You get, like, your hover packs, your helicopter packs. You get, like, your um, one of your ratchets is, like, a grapple that you can swing from. So I knew that they'd already had some experience working with aerial movement. And I knew that they would be a good fit for it. Definitely worked out. Uh, big things I liked about Spider-Man story was phenomenal. Um, again, like Jordan was saying earlier when we were talking about Destiny and Division, like all of a sudden a dude in the streets like, "Yo, Spider-Man, and you help, help me. I'm getting mugged." And you just swoop down and you save him. And you're like, "That's right, dude." And then you give him a high five, and he's like, "You're the best." And you're like, "I am the best." Hey, yo, Spider-Man. Spider I know it's like five o'clock in the morning, but I got this crane here for you. Let me swing it on over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you know what? They would do that, and he would do that too, because it's Spider-Man. And I definitely did do that. When I was playing, again, I'm the guy who has to do all the things that are presented to me as soon yes, as they're presented absolutely. to me. So they're like, oh, hey, Spider-Man, I need you to get, or Peter, I need you to get to the lab right now, because we have a board meeting in an hour, and I'm like, oh, man, but Tombstone's got a mission over here. I, I better go do that. <laughs> like, oh, man, this person's getting mugged. Gotta stop and do that. Oh, man, the the... You know, the fist goonies are up to no good again over there. I got to go put that down. And Did you so, ever just like Peter Parker, I, it almost made me, I knew it wouldn't happen, of course, but it almost made me wonder. I'm like, man, if I didn't do any of those missions and I went straight to the mission, would it be different? But <laughs> I knew it would obviously be the same. So I was just like, no, I'm just going to do all the side stuff first. Well, that happened in Spider-Man Web of Shadows. If you didn't, if you kept ignoring, uh, like cries for help and because they had districts if you kept ignoring cries for help the district overall would become more chaotic and worse yeah see that the, would be the a really crime would get up if you did if you ignored the um the the cries for help in an area it's that like would be well a... you didn't stop the robbery so now the you know the the property values went down and stuff like that blah 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 and i'm like oh my god this is so cool yeah that would be a really interesting take for them to to either a do a dlc for which by now might be too late or b to implement into a marvel spider-man 2 made by insomniac where either a if you like ignore the main mission too much maybe that changes how the story overall happens at the end of the game like yeah. maybe you could have stopped doc ock from being a bad guy maybe doc ock could have been a spider-man like buddy duo all of a sudden in the next game that could have been a whole new take on the franchise and like maybe some people would have hated that but i think it would have been cool if they did it in a way that made sense. Um, which the way they presented uh, Peter and Dr. Octavius in this story, like 
he knew he was working with Spider-Man and basically knew you were Spider-Man from the beginning, but just acted like he didn't because he wanted you to feel better about it. But, uh, you know, like, I think it could have worked. Um, but again, that's just my fan service thing that I would like to see in a video game. Uh, game overall was super fun. Uh, some of the challenges were a little tedious, but I didn't have to do uh, restart them too many times or whatever once I got the feel for it. Um, but it, but that's also kind of how the button masher games go too. Like you get in the, the habit of mashing all these buttons and you obviously hit wrong buttons sometimes and sometimes it punishes you really hard, sometimes it doesn't. Um, story was great. Side content was done perfectly. I love like the crimes popping up in the city as you're swinging through going to do stuff. All about the side content. Feel like there was a lot of to do things that weren't 100 percent necessary but they make sense like at first uh the labs for harry were very like for me i was like man you know like harry's making me do all his chores what a jerk and then later you find out what actually happened to harry and you're like oh my gosh but you know, that's not as big of a payoff to me because it only deals with the very end of the game. And I won't say exactly what it is because I don't want to spoil that for people who do want to play it because I already, guess, unintentionally spoiled the Doc Ock thing. But anyway, I think a lot of people saw that coming because that's kind of the whole premise of the main part of the game. Yeah, you hear Doc... No one's going to be surprised to hear that Doc Ock's a villain. If, <laughs> yeah, if you played the Spider-Man game... Yeah. Doc Ock's a villain? What? It's like, oh no, Lex Luthor did something bad. And you're like, did you really think like they were going to pull like, a fast one on you on this like, one? Like, oh no, the Joker kidnapped or murdered somebody. <laughs> if anyone, if you if, if you went out and said like, hey look, Doc Ock's not the villain of this game. He's actually a good guy. That would be a huge spoiler. And that's what I'm saying. That would <laughs> that would have been a crazy twist. Is it like yeah. imagine an alternate ending where you do show up on time all the time to the meetings and skip the side content and the city hates Spider-Man more, but you save Doc Ock. And in the second game, now Doc Ock is a playable Spider-Man buddy duo character and you can do like co-op levels and stuff. That'd be crazy. Would, yeah, that that would be the I would have such a chubby for that game. <laughs> I would get mad if someone spoiled that for me. How did you feel about Spider-Man, Aaron, since you uh, played it? I really liked it. Um, I don't know a ton about Spider-Man lore, but I enjoy that. Like, I know the ending of that game subverts what normally happens in Spider-Man yeah. universe, so that was really cool. I actually, one thing I did do, um, I don't know if everybody else did this, but obviously some of the crimes get a little monotonous when you're doing the platinum trophy you have to complete and, yeah i didn't platinum it either in so the whole game so some of them get a little tedious where it's just like okay i gotta stop you know five crimes in each sector and i'm like okay i'm gonna do them all now so i would just go do all the crimes and i would swing up and down manhattan like looking for people doing bad things and stop them and it's like okay you stop so many cars you stop so many muggings you stop so many thefts you stop so many bombings and it all just turns into the same crime over and over again after a while. So I actually started listening to like Spider-Man lore and um, like I hooked up like my Bluetooth earphones to my phone and was listening to some different lore on like I listened to uh, like Super Spider-Man or, or the Spider-Man where Doc Ock becomes Spider-Man lore and I listened to some other stuff. And so that was actually kind of cool, like listening to different Spider-Man stories while just doing Spider-Man stuff because as someone like you said, I don't know a whole lot about Spider-Man outside of the Tobey Maguire movie trilogy and 
the best trilogy. I, love, I don't know. I love the Tom Holland movies. <laughs> They're really good. Yeah. Uh, You're the reason we're not getting Sam Raimi's vision of Spider-Man 4, you heathens. Thank God. I'm not saying that the Tobey Maguire movies were bad. I really enjoyed them. I just love the Tom Holland movies. They're fantastic. And uh, I'm gonna rub some dirt in your. <laughs> this game, this game was fantastic as well. Ten out of ten. If you can grab it for like twenty bucks cheaper on a sale, which it probably is. At some it'd point. be free at that point. Yeah, you're not Superman, you know. After after this month, Sony. Marvel Spider-Man 4 PlayStation Instant Game Collection next month. Let's go. All right. It's uh, trilogy, man. <laughs> moving on. Um, Mike, yeah, yeah, talk yeah, yeah. to us about Persona, Persona 4 Dancing All Night. Yes, please tell us about So, uh, if anybody plays Persona, uh, very similar to RPG-style games. I know Jordan's a big Persona fan. I am as well. Uh, I lean a little bit more towards I prefer 4 to 5. That has more to do with story for me. Uh, I think 5 is mechanically the much better game. But again, Persona 4 Dancing All Night, it is a rhythm game. And basically what it is, is you play through kind of like almost like Guitar Hero. Uh, You play songs and hit the notes to the rhythm. Uh, In this game, it is remixes and the normal soundtrack from persona four with some new songs thrown in and I guess depending on how you look at it for people who've played persona four they put a story in the game so this takes place a year after the events of persona four or persona four golden whichever one you played um and it kind of catches up on like what the characters have been up to so in a way it's a huge fan service game I think anybody outside picking this game up probably wouldn't care about the story mode and you would get the most bang for your buck out of the free play just playing the soundtracks, playing the remixes uh, to the rhythm. It's a good time. Uh, But if you are a fan, if you have played Persona 4, you're going to love this game. It's 100% for the fans. Uh, You get like a story follow-up of like what's happening a year later. Uh, A crime happens where in Persona 4, basically the main premise is there's an alternate world to your world. You access it through a portal, which happens to be a television. Uh, to go through the television, the portal opens at a certain time every night, but later you find that when you get a grasp on the ability to control that energy, you're able to go through it too, and that's what they call the persona, is kind of your natural aura, your personality. Once you get a full grasp of it, you can manifest it in real life as its own individual uh, creature which is your persona, and once you're able to do that, you can access the portal at any time. Something like that starts happening again a year later, but it's a completely different entity this time. It's not the same crime, but similar things are happening, and you got to connect the dots to figure out what's happening, and then all of a sudden a, peop- a, a bunch of people, your friends go missing, so you got to go look for them. You end up in the world, and the main twist is, and I can say this is probably why people wouldn't like it, is it's not an RPG a rhythm game so instead of you know grinding up and leveling your character and fighting dudes you're dancing and you're doing rhythm and the reason why is because in persona the world uh just like persona 5 the palace is built for uh the person that it belongs to and so this world is a stage and it's built by a creature that thrives on 
like uh, the heart and bonds. And uh, so they want to create a world where there's no harm done to people. So they literally have a world where people are like, uh, the shadows are like, um, the shadows are the like the monster characters you beat up normally in Persona. That's what they call them. Um, they're like tied together with ribbons in a crowd. So they can't like attack you. They're like chained up, but they're standing in front of a stage. And basically what ends up happening is you get forced up onto this stage and you have to convey your heart or your emotions to the shadows to make them feel again. Otherwise you get grabbed by the ribbons and get pulled into the shadows with them. And then you lose your sense of self and you become a part of the shadowy crowd and get lost forever. And so basically the, this world is dragging people in who feel like they're nobody and they're worthless. And they're like, okay, we're going to drag you in and make you one of us. And then you're going to be part of us. And then, they're accepting of it and then you're like no you got to be you and you go in there and show them how to be you and you save them and the shadows are all like oh shit, i should be me too sorry i did it again anyway i'll, I'll do better but oh, trust me it, it, the game. A while. Uh, they also made one for persona 3 it's called dancing in moonlight and they also made yeah. one for persona Great. 5 called dancing in starlight i'm definitely going to do persona 5 dancing in starlight at some point because i love persona 5 um if you like rhythm games, it would be probably a super good uh, time just in free play. If you played Persona 4, I would say 100% you got to get this game at some point. It's just fan service galore for people who like Persona 4. And, and also, um, three and five. it's worth mentioning because people have probably seen Joker. And um, if you watch Super Smash Brothers, he's a character in, in, yes. uh, in Super He's a character in there now. He's DLC. Uh, Persona 4 and 3 have their own fighting game. And they're also in crossover games. Yeah, like Persona in 4 Arena and Persona 4 Arena Ultimax. Yes, exactly. And, and now imagine... So here's a question. I know you guys talk about uh, fighting characters all the time for Smash and how you guys... Aaron hates Byleth and you love Byleth. How would you feel yeah. if they were like, hey, we're going to put, uh, I guess, the Persona 4 or Persona 3 main character in Smash? It would have to be Persona Three because Persona they they've already like crossover with the Persona Four main like mm -hmm. Yu Nakamura I believe like is yeah Yu Narakami Yu Narakami yeah uh he is already in like the Blaze Blue universe crossover yeah. stuff because mm -hmm. like the sprites I think they just use the same exact sprites and stuff like that from Ultimax yeah uh, and they transferred it over really quickly the main character in Persona Three. For lore reasons, is not in the Persona 4 fighting game, yeah. uh, and I think he would be a good addition. But they would have to do things completely different than yeah. than with Joker. Like they would have to implement the wild card in the game. I wouldn't. Like, I'm sorry. Finish up. Uh, they would have to like kind of kind of like what they did with Violet. Like that. Like Fire Emblem is such like a modular game. Like you can you can make your character do. You can probably you can make Byleth do anything in that game. Honestly, you can make him. You can make her be like a ranged character or mage or melee with axes or heavy armor and stuff like that. And it's the same thing with like Persona games, especially with the wild card active. Just use different personas. Like everyone just, but everyone thinks Arsen is the character they got and not just Joker. And if you can kind of mix it up a bit, you know, you can bring in keep. Uh, Izanagi 
who's the main character uh the main character from Persona 4 is like whatever. Yeah. Here, but here in Persona 3, that. he had two main ones. He's got three technically. He's got three technical main ones. One of them's literally Jesus. Uh the other one's Orpheus and the other one's uh Thanatos. So mm -hmm. just use those instead. Yeah, I could see it working really well if you did something kind of like Shulk where you like hold the button to change yeah. the you're on. You could just change your mask or change your persona that you're using and it changes your moveset. Or like a special ability at least. Yeah, and I personally, I wouldn't remind another persona character in Smash. My my only issue with Byleth, I like, I don't disagree with Byleth. Like Jordan has said plenty of times, like, you know, they use this to sell the games. There's a Smash bump or whatever. But my biggest issue with Byleth is just the fact that, like, there's just so many Fire Emblem characters. Like, and there's so many other games that are underrepresented. That's my only issue with that. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I, I've only played Persona 5, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm misspeaking here. But I'd heard a podcast talking about that the reason that Persona 3 doesn't specifically doesn't get revisited a lot is because unlike putting on masks, like, they shot themselves. And, like, yeah. suicide awareness and all that has come a very long way since Persona 3. Yeah, so that could Persona be a reason 3, that's not activate. as talked about. In Persona 3, you activate your Persona by shooting yourself in the head. And... Uh, not with a gun. It's yeah, not an actual gun. But still, <laughs> but, it's a representation. But, yeah. And uh, in the game, though, like... Um, the way you're introduced to your persona in Persona 3 also is like you encounter the monsters for the first time and you see this other person just like shoot themselves in the head and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Or at least this is what Kyle told me. I haven't played Persona 3. He loves Persona 3. He told me all about it. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said you've played it, Jordan. But you're encountered with the monsters and you're like, what am I going to do? I can't fight them. I can't beat them. And basically like Aaron said suicide awareness you're like it's my only way out and you like go to do it too and all of a sudden you're like wait a minute i just unlocked my hidden potential i think it has something to do with like <laughs> killing like the whole thing with personas that we were talking Kill about your before, like, like um your persona is your actualized self like yeah. taking form and like some sort of mythological perspective and stuff like yeah that. It's like what you want to be yeah. yeah it's it's who you are inside without all like the the hubbub yeah, that society that the doubt or the yeah I, I could see that being the emphasis in persona 3 like the reason you shoot yourself in the head is because you're killing the doubt in your brain or something about who you really are or something like that you know i could see where that was the metaphor at the time yeah you're like killing the visage of like that you have who everyone else thinks you are yeah, exactly and like that, your actualized self comes out afterwards. Right. It, it's it's very metaphorical, but I can see why it would be kind of a pain but to like diagnose with other for, people. For Smash, I I will say I do feel like there's too many Fire Emblem characters. I do feel like Byleth does deserve a spot, considering how good uh, Three Houses was. Also, obviously, it's the perfect. Um, uh, product placement opportunity for them because they had DLC coming out for it. They wanted people to be thinking about Fire Emblem again. Also, she's fun um, to play. Like, come uh, on. <laughs> but I would love to see other characters too. Uh, I know Aaron wants Sora, but I think at this point, any video game character that's coming onto Switch is probably going to be a good candidate considering uh, they said that it's already decided. So 
Yeah, and Sakurai said he had no say in this next DLC patch. Right. Like and, Nintendo and made the decisions. I think the Arms character coming next is is one hundred percent them basically just being like the following characters are just for games we want to get attention to so that you buy them because like Arms first came out and people were excited about it and then we played it and we're like, now what? <laughs> like it was okay. I think that game would have been way better if they actually went with putting Monkey D. Luffy in it like they originally were wanting to but then oh were... that would have been so good wait what the developers wanted the developers wanted to put monkey d luffy in the game and i'm pretty sure oda said that he would give them the rights to do it or would sell them the ip to do it but nintendo was like no we want nintendo characters we don't want other characters they don't have any and, other nintendo characters and it's like, yeah, well, I don't know we're about to get five more fire emblem characters great <laughs> I mean, I'm cool with them putting an arms character and that's fine. But at the same time, it's like the game, I thought it introduced some good ideas, but ultimately it's like, it's one of those games you play a few times. And then after that, you're like, I got the experience. I'm good. I don't want to play it anymore. That's exactly what it We're is. We're supposed to be getting part of a Pokemon DLC in the next month and a half. Like, I'm thinking that like, isn't there like, isn't the legendary Pokemon you're picking up in the first half of this, like a fighting Pokemon that'll probably end up in the yeah, game. The, and that's the thing that I'm so upset with the current Pokemon game, but the DLC does look cool. I like, I love the idea that it's like this Pokemon literally evolves based on how you fight with it and you take it to a different dojo. There's two separate dojos. It's a fighting type Pokemon that looks like the karate kid. And he's like a little teddy bear karate kid. And you take him to a dojo and you train him in a certain fighting style at that dojo. And when you complete the dojo, he evolves into a new fighting type something other type Pokemon with certain moves based on that fighting style. And it's like, why don't you do cool stuff like this in the game? And it's like, I feel like Sword and Shield, while it had many good points, was one of the most rushed like oh, Pokemon games of all time. And it's, it was such an unfulfilling experience for me as a huge Pokemon fan. I mean, I like the game and I can wholly admit that um, that it was it felt rushed a hundred percent yeah like pokemon has a special place in my heart it'll probably always be one of like my top five favorite franchises like it was the first game that was ever mine that i had to myself and i've i've probably played thousands upon thousands of hours of pokemon over the course of my life depending i've played all the different versions of the main games at least i've played a ton of the spin-off games and I just feel Sword and Shield was such a poor underrepresentation of what the franchise used to be. And I like I love some of the ideas they put in, but it, they just didn't put in any of the effort anywhere else that makes Pokemon what Pokemon is. And I and I agree with a lot of the people who would say like if you're gonna introduce somebody to Pokemon for the first time, you should get them Heart Gold or Soul Silver, because that's probably the most fulfilling Pokemon oh, yeah. there is. Anyway, we were talking about Spider-Man, and then we talked about Smash, and then we were talking Persona. about... Persona. We were talking about Persona. Yeah, we were talking... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I had to run upstairs to grab something. Um, <laughs> so there was... Profona... Yeah, we were talking about Persona 4 dancing all night. So unless you have something to finish up with that, we can move on to God of War. All, all I have to say about that is if you've played any of the Persona 3, 4, or 5, definitely get the dancing games afterward. It's kind of like a short... Yeah, it's <laughs> storyline and you play through the jamming soundtracks from all the games and there's remixes and new songs included as well so it was a great time i loved revisiting the series i love the characters 
obviously someone from the outside looking in, I wouldn't recommend it without playing the main game first because it's Absolutely. mostly yeah. fan service. And it's basically for the people who love the game and love the soundtrack. And it was a really good time for me because I love it. You will. You will. You play those games. The best things about yeah. those games are literally like, you don't, either you love the story. You don't buy a waifu pillow after playing one of those games. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it started the original waifu wars. So uh, in the music, it always always great. It's been great wars at have. Yeah, and and I I know Jordan's talked extensively about Persona before, so I won't go too heavily into it. But the main difference between Persona and other RPGs is it's got the slice of life simulator thrown in. You got to manage your daily life and your relationships in addition to your RPG shenanigans where you're killing monsters and leveling up to fight the bad guy. And that's what makes it special. Alrighty. <laughs> Moving on. God of War PS4, Mike, talk to us. I have a little bit to say on this one, but not like too terribly much. So, God of War, uh, a lot like Spider-Man and a lot like Horizon, which I just started again recently. I picked up when it first came out, played a few hours, put it down because I was busy doing other stuff between work and and playing a game like Destiny or World of Warcraft, for example, it just sucks up all your free time because it's demanding it of you and you don't get to play these other games, which is why I've been heavily focused on my collection that I've built up of PlayStation games, and I'm also going to get into my Nintendo and Xbox games soon, probably. Uh, but God of War came back to... At first, I, I had a little trouble getting into it because I, I picked up on the save where I left off. I was right at the end of Alfheim, so my introduction to the game again was fighting a boss because <laughs> I, I didn't realize that the boss was next. I was just like, oh, I'm going to save here, you know, like two years ago and then picked up the game and was like, all right, I know I'm still at the beginning kind of, so I'm going to play it. And I like move forward through like two areas and now I'm fighting a boss. I'm like, okay, cool. It wasn't too hard though. Um, so I, I picked back up on it. Uh, after that, I did a lot of exploring to kind of learn the controls again. And then I uh, got back on the main story path. At first, I was kind of disinterested and kind of whatever, but I would say it really picked up after um, the introduction of, like, uh, uh, Magni and Modi start showing up. Uh, those are Thor's sons, uh, Baldur's nephews. And uh, when you get Mimir, I think that's when the game really starts to get more interesting because they actually start to tell you more about the world. And at first, you're just kind of like, okay... Uh, my wife died, my son's mom died, we're going to go spread her ashes, cool, we're going to do that. And now there's like these monsters and these dudes in the way, like trying to stop us. And now you actually know why. And I think that's part of the reason why it was kind of disinteresting at first, is you'd like, you know, why am I doing this? Like, why is this like this? And then also that's around the time when you start to get some of the more familiar things from God of War, like, uh, spoiler alert, you get the Chaos Blades back, um, uh, shortly after that because you're like oh man i gotta go to this place where my thing's not gonna work my axe isn't gonna work against these guys so i gotta go get a weapon that will work and you go dig up your chaos blades that you hit under your house and you're like i never said i would do this again but i'm doing it again and you get the blades and you're like oh shocker <laughs> oh we're go killing again i would say that i would say that's the moment where the game got really fun for me is i love the chaos blades it was lot more fun than the axe for me i know p people love the axe the axe feels good but i love the chaos blades that to me is kratos and i love the kratos chaos blade fighting yeah so yeah. i haven't made it as far as you there was just something about this game like it's 
it's a good game. It's a great game. Like I definitely yeah. acknowledge that it's better than a lot of games. Do you remember didn't where you dig its claws into me? I think where was I? I was in the first like realm you go to. Yeah, Alfheim. Yeah, I, that was kind of how I was feeling too. I, I hate to be that person who's or like of that mentality of like you got to get to this part because it's kind of true. It's almost like One Piece. It's like you got to get to Arabasta. It's like if you if you don't stick with it to that part, you don't understand like why people love the show and like what it's about. And it's kind of same with the game in this sense to me is like for the people who aren't immediately invested in the game from the moment they pick it up it's like the investment comes like a little bit later and i can see where from a storytelling standpoint for people who are brand new to the series why they would want to do it slow like that but at the same time um that's for me where the game got a lot more exciting is when uh like the main players actually started to show up more you got mimir who is the norse um I don't remember if he's exactly a god, but he's basically the smartest, smartest man in the Norse mythos and knows everything. And so as you're playing through the game, now you've got this guy telling you all the stories about Norse mythology and telling you why things are happening and what people are doing and where to go to get things. And so you're not just like sitting around asking yourself, like, why is this like this? Why does that do that? And, and again, God of War has backtracking. And so that was another reason I got kind of discouraged at first is I'm like, playing through the game and i see like oh here's these thorn things but i can't cut them down to get the treasure that's frustrating like how do i get this and waste time trying to figure it out only to find out oh i gotta come back later and then so while there is a lot of backtracking to go back through the game to get things there's a mixture of backtracking done wrong and backtracking done right in this game i mean some people argue with me about that but uh, i will say at least when you're completing the game 100%, um, it's best basically to, what I did was I kind of roamed the lake area first, found all the things in there, and then once I did all of that, then I went back through the game area by area, because you need to go back, do the backtrack, and get the items you couldn't get before. Um, and while you're doing that, there's also like one or two or more hidden areas in each area that you can unlock once you're able to do the backtracking so there are extra areas you can get to now that are full areas and some of them are even bigger than the main game levels like um one of them is like the dwarven uh uh castle area and that one's a huge area that you can only get to at the end of the game and uh so those are all really cool too all right so let's keep let's keep plugging through your list here mike we're we're going on the longest podcast we've ever recorded, and we're in Mike's section of what have you been playing. Yeah, sorry. I, oh, no, it's fine. I love it. It's just, that's where we're at right now. Um, talk to yeah. us about Medieval. Interesting. The PS4 version, the remake. Yeah, so after God of War, I was I was in that mood where I enjoyed God of War. I had a really good time, especially once I got to, I would say it's probably like a third of the way through the stories where it picks up. And that's where I started to get more invested and I really enjoyed it. But at the end, if you're going for the 100% for the platinum, you got to do all of the like Niflheim challenges and unlock all of the, the treasures in the storeroom and fight all the Valkyries. And the last bit of grinding in Niflheim and that last Valkyrie fight definitely are going to take a toll on anybody who does it. They're not easy. It's a challenge. Well, the Niflheim stuff is just a grind. So it's not really a challenge. It's more or less just doing it and it takes a few hours and then, 
the Valkyrie fight is a challenge, even on if you play on easy, it's going to give you a run for your money. If you haven't practiced on a higher difficulty, you need to learn to parry her attacks. You need to learn to dodge her attacks. You need to learn to fight her properly. I heard like, about that fight. Most of the Valkyries, you can dump all of your power-ups at one time, your runic attacks, your, your rage, and just stomp them into the dirt. This is the one Valkyrie you cannot do that on. Uh, you can still interrupt her by doing those, and you can still kind of uh, stun lock her a little bit into a combo when you have those abilities up. But her health bar is big enough that you will not be able to burn through all of her HP, even with the best gear, without having to learn to fight her. And so, yeah, I would say it took me maybe like two hours, maybe one to two hours to actually learn her pattern. Because uh, what's different about her from all the other Valkyries, the Valkyrie Queen, is that she has all the abilities of the other Valkyries. Each of the Valkyries have a specific ability they use during the fight. She uses all of them. And so that you have to remember all their abilities or fight her until you learn their abilities if you beat them all up too fast to learn them the first time. And so it's kind of the Dark Souls feeling of like you learn it, you beat it, and you feel good about it. Um, so after that, I was kind of like wiped out and I was like, I need something fun, something quick, and I remembered I'd started the Medieval Resurrection, which is the Medieval Remaster um, for PS4 uh, back around uh, like the holiday time. I got it for Christmas, and I was like, you know, I liked this game back when it was on PS1. I remember playing it back when it first came out, and I was like, I want to see where it went. I heard good things about it. I played the remaster, and it was a good time. It was fun. It was... Uh, I would say it's a lot like the Spyro remakes and the Crash remakes. It's not nearly as good or on their level because they didn't 100% remake this game, and I wish they did. Uh, it's more of like they put you know, a really nice resolution on everything and then slapped the same game mechanics into the world. I know some people from the Crash community would probably have liked that for the Crash thing because of the whole debate over the pillbox-style hitbox. I was about to say, it's really only in Crash 1. It's only really in Crash 1 that it was affected. Yeah, and so ultimately I think it's fine. It was a fun game. Uh, Platinum it was not hard. You play through the game, you get all... It's it's kind of like Spyro and Crash. It's a collect-a-thon. Uh, you play through the levels, you collect the things. You get a bunch of different weapons as you progress. The more um, you collect, the more weapons you can unlock, the more fun you can have. And uh, the game also has a good sense of humor. There's lots of funny jokes in it, uh, as well as uh, um, uh, the gameplay is pretty solid. It hasn't deter uh, deterred much from the original. A lot of the gameplay is still the same. just looks really nice. And uh, it was a fun short platinum. Uh, probably took like eight to nine hours, maybe. Yeah, that was that was actually the biggest complaint I heard with the game personally. It was the fact that since the first medieval is such a short game it was all like especially when you compare it to like the crash remake and the spyro remake like why didn't it include more of the games yeah i can 100 percent agree with that um if you can get the game on sale i'd say it would be worth it but full price you know it's kind of short but again that is basically what the original game was i mean people back then paid full price which is basically the same value now or more due to inflation for that size of a game I mean, I'm not saying we should have short games. I love bigger, more inclusive games. Obviously, the consumer wants a better product. But I do agree they should have probably had uh, another game at least put into it or maybe went with the full remake instead of 
the remaster and added some like new content like how the crash games added their own new level later like maybe the medieval could have done that and that would have been really cool because um, the the one thing they did add that's in the remake or in the remaster that's not in the original is the lost souls and what that is is basically in each of the levels they added a soul that you have to find and they have like a little mini uh, quest for you to do in another level so it puts you on this fetch quest where you're hopping from one level to another to find a soul and also to take a soul and put it to rest so basically you just end up playing through the game again so you run through the game two times and you're done all right let's move on uh interesting that you put this because i was just thinking the other day mike where in god's green earth is the crash bandicoot nitro kart remake crash team racing nitro kart remake for the pc and here you are playing team sonic racing which i've heard is a very solid kart racing game let's talk about it what you've heard is true that was very fun it had a great time i would say um i don't know if you played sonic all-stars racing which was the last game they came out with which was available on wii u and playstation and, and pc and everywhere and that's one nice thing about the sega publishing that they have is they do put it on everything so um team sonic racing uh basically improved in my opinion on everything that was in sonic all-stars racing the only thing that didn't really carry over was the uh non-sonic characters which i'm kind of okay with because i'm i don't know if i want danica patrick in my sonic game <laughs> i mean <laughs> hey i finished seventh in a race once i'm popular yeah. i mean some people are into it it's what for me, it kills the immersion. It's like I, I was more cool with like Wreck-It Ralph being in there. It's like the game's cartoony. I want the cartoony characters. It's kind of weird for me to have like a real life person in the game. Like last time they did that with Sonic 06, it was a bad time. Please don't go there again. <laughs> uh, anyway, the game's fantastic. Uh, it's everything you could want from a kart racer like Mario Kart. Uh, I would say the quality is basically the same level. The music's fantastic. The levels are beautiful. The handling is great. Um, there's enough variety in terms of the carts and the characters that you can kind of get your own specific build that you want. Uh, the premise of the game is that there's an emphasis on being a team. So you're racing in a team and not just by yourself. And what that means is not only is your score calculated together at the end, which can sometimes be frustrating when you want to hit certain challenges, if you're going for like the platinum or all the achievements or whatever, on whichever platform you're on, but it makes it a whole lot more fun when you're playing with people. I played it with my buddy Jed and we had such a good time because uh, you get certain abilities. So like in Mario Kart, for example, drafting is a thing. You can get behind a guy and ride their draft and get a boost when you move out of the draft stream. But in Team Sonic Racing, not only is that a thing, uh, but you get rewarded for doing it with your teammates. You get an ultimate meter, which basically shows up right next to your bumper on your car. And anything you do teamwork related, so if you draft your teammate, which they call a slingshot, you get ultimate meter points. If you um, skim boost your teammate, so if your teammate gets like hit by an item or runs into a wall and they get spun out, you can boost into their cart and they automatically will speed up to whatever speed you're going. So you can recover your teammate from like a bad position and help them get back up to speed. And that gives you teammate points. And my number Shake one big. and my number one favorite uh, feature of the game is you can trade items. So, and that also gives you teammate points. So if you, for example, are in like first place and you're getting all these items you don't need 
and your friend is getting wrecked back in like eighth or tenth place and you're like hey man here have this missile hey i just got this have this i don't need it and you're feeding them these items which are helping them move up through the the ranks as well as giving you teammate points and then once you get your ultimate meter f filled up you basically activate a star power up like mario kart what that is is it makes you invincible it makes you go way faster and also if you hit any other characters that aren't on your team you spin them out making them fall behind and that also extends the duration of it so you you could be in like your buddy could be in last place and you guys could activate your team ultimate and he could crash through like everybody in front of him and have his team ultimate last like almost a whole lap and get crazy far ahead um so I love the emphasis on team play. Playing with other people is a huge blast. Uh, there's 15 characters to play as. Uh, and 20, there was either 20 or 21 different maps or racetracks to race on that were all different. So that was cool. Um, they all had like their own feel to them, which was really great. Um, the soundtrack's really good. I think I mentioned that. Uh, there's time trials and stuff if you're into that. Uh, the leaderboards are actually pretty competitive. Uh, that was one uh, kind of tedious trophy we had to do was to find a friend's leaderboard and beat it. I would highly recommend it if they make another one, which I'm assuming they will, please add a filter for searching the leaderboard so that you can either search by your friends times or just like filter by names in general or times. Um, the story mode, uh, nothing to write home about. It's just your basic, hey, we got invited to a race. Let's go race. And Story um, modes and kart racers, they're cool, so but it's like, first, it's like a first-person like a first shooter at a certain point. It's not why we're here. And he's working with the other guy. Did I cut out at all? Sorry about the technical difficulties. I didn't touch my mouse for a long time. My monitor powered down into sleep mode, and then it stopped <laughs> recognizing that it was the uh, speaker source. Oh. Where did I leave off? We were talking about Team Sonic Racing. You remember the last thing I was talking about before it cut out? Nope. <laughs> uh, I remembered talking about the characters. Did I talk about the characters and the carts? Um, it's 15 characters, 20 tracks. There's a story mode. The story mode's like, story's not that great. It's a Sonic game. It's cut and dry. You get invited to a race by this Tanuki guy. They're suspicious of him because he invited them to a race and gave them all race cars. It's definitely okay, weird. yeah, that that's where we kind of cut. Is I, I was mentioning, okay. and this might have been when you cut, is like, I feel like much like a first person shooter like Star Wars Battlefront 2 like I don't think a kart racer needs a story it's neat when it has one but I don't think it needs one. Right. I mean for the people who love the Sonic characters again it's fan service if you if you're into the Sonic characters you get to see each of your favorite characters say their typical lines and say their things with yeah. Got to go fast. You get to see Knuckles be dumb, you get to see Shadow be edgy, you get to see Amy be a love-struck soccer uh, fangirl for not sasuke or whatever you know <laughs> basically what you get and it's fine the story mode's fine you get to play a bunch of different tracks and honestly i will say the one thing that i did like about the story mode outside of the story just being bland is um there's actually challenges in the story mode and those challenge levels actually offer completely different gameplay experiences for kart racing that i would like to actually see added into mario kart um so normally in Mario Kart, they would have these as like a separate game mode multiplayer thing that you could do. But these are just kind of like little solo challenges that you can do to, as part of the story to unlock. Uh, you get stars and you use those to unlock your levels or whatever. And um, 
one of them was called like traffic attack. And so for example, you get these little robots on the track and you got to dodge them. And one of them always stays in their lane. One of them always moves left to right and back again. And another one is always trying to hit you. And uh, the goal is to dodge through them and also pass through like goalposts to earn points. Another one is uh, called, um, I think it was called skim. I don't remember, but you basically slalom along these posts and uh, you weave in and out of them. And as you drift through them, you get points for going through uh, close to the pole. The closer you get without hitting it, the more points you get. And like one side of the poles a score multiplier while the other one is like big points. And so you got to do like a mixture of keeping your multiplier up while also scoring points to get the high score. Um, they had another one, which is like Eggman just puts a bunch of his robots on the track and you race with them and you have to destroy like so many of them before time runs out. And the more of them you break, the more time you get. And so those are all really fun for me. I enjoyed all of those challenge modes. All right. But yeah, the multiplayer, super great. I would highly recommend that game. Um, if you're looking for something Mario Kart-esque and you haven't tried anything else in a while, uh, I would highly recommend uh, Team Sonic Racing. Yeah, I just looked it up real quick. On Steam, 40 bucks or like 230-something as part of the Ultimate Sonic Collection, which is 10% off right now. Yeah, even for the $40 price tag, you're going to get, you're definitely going to get your t- uh, money's worth out of the kart racer for that game i mean you're probably going to be hard pressed to get mario kart for any cheaper anyway so yeah well and i'm really interested too i think like i don't necessarily think any kart racer has done it better than mario kart overall sense but there's been some really cool ideas like i feel like i I feel like a season pass that like kind of levels up kind of like Fortnite style or something or like destiny 2 these days i feel like those are perfect for those kind of games like if they wanted to make some extra cash cosmetic stuff Yeah, for a game like this, I think that would work perfectly. And I really quick would say the the main differences between something like Mario Kart and Sonic Team Racing or Team Sonic Racing is um, there aren't as many kart customization options. But that's because rather than in Mario Kart, for example, you get completely different karts altogether. Like you might get one that's a train. You might get one that's a teddy bear. You might get one that's like an actual car and then you change the body and the wheels and the spoiler or i mean the the uh kite that you put on it uh the sonic one each character has basically four separate builds that they can do on your cart you start with a standard one and you can uh change them there's three different parts just like in mario kart there's the body the wheels and the spoiler instead of the um uh, kite and uh you have three more loadouts that you unlock there's a speed variant a uh, technique variant and like a power variant which is good at like defending and boosting and um, you can mix and match all those different parts together to get a really wide array of uh, stats so unlike mario kart how like it's like oh this teddy bear cart is always going to be like this fast and even if i put like these wheels and this thing on it i'm still going to be stuck in like this archetype so it's just not good uh, that's not necessarily true with like Team Sonic Racing, for example. Like I could pick like uh, they have three different character types, just like in Mario Kart. They have like the featherweight, the metal weight, the the yeah. medium weight, and that determines like your base racing stats. They have that too in Team Sonic Racing, but there's only three, so it's a little easier to balance. And um, there's the speed type, the technique type, and the power type. So Sonic, for example, on Sonic's team is the speed type. Tails is the technique type, and knuckles is the power type and what that means is 
overall your base speed is faster the speed type characters also get like a couple seconds of invincibility frames whenever they do a boost that's their special ability the technique type special abilities you can drive over any terrain without being slowed down so you can take all kinds of shortcuts through like sand and water and mud and lava and stuff without getting slowed down and the power type characters can crash through barriers accessing like shortcuts and other secret areas and they also get uh, rings which are their version of coins for speeding up their cart during a race um and again so like it's in my opinion easier to balance like for example i was using a technique character but i built like a speed customized cart with him and he was just as fast as like sonic with the speed loadout but he had better handling because of the way i set it up and so i'd say it's a little bit easier to get like the style you want than mario kart but mario kart definitely has the variety in terms of characters and cart customization plus they don't teach you that stuff like yeah. the people who have been playing like Mario Kart for a long time, we know about that stuff ahead of time. But if you just jump into the game, they don't explain anything to you. You're like, just just pick a cart that looks cute and go. Yeah, and, and the, like the, the actual like in the the grid of it. Yeah, and the Sonic stuff. game doesn't do a super great job of doing that either. But they do actually have helpful tint, hint windows. So like anytime you're hit with a load screen, they actually go through hints that tell you how the game works. They'll be like, hey. This is what this ability does. Hey, this is what this type of racer means. This is what you get from uh, using like this loadout, or this is how you do a rival takedown, or things like that. And you're like, what's that? How do I do that? And so now you know. You're like, oh, a rival takedown is when you hit anyone who's ahead of you on another team, and that adds to your ultimate meter. So whoever's the first place team, if you knock out one of their players, you get more points or something like that. And I wouldn't have known that <laughs> before without you know, seeing the tip. And so like the Sonic um, loadouts for the cars, they also have uh, icons that kind of straight up tell you like the speed car is a wheel with flames on it. So you know like, oh, and all of the parts for speed type have that icon. And you know that the technique type is always the one with like the, the wrench or whatever it was. Interesting. Okay. Let's keep on rolling here. Battlefield 5, Mike. I want to hear about this. So Battlefield 5, uh, I did not enjoy very much. Oh, um, okay. I think Return to World War II was good, but... I don't know. I think it's one of the weaker Battlefield entries, in my opinion. I think Battlefield 1 is the superior game, if you're looking for more of the old-school warfare-type battle simulator. thought that one was a lot better. Well done. Um, the story mode is very weak, in my opinion, in this game. Uh, there's nine levels across three what they call war stories. I don't remember if it's something they started doing in Battlefield 1, Basically, they're looking for, I don't know if they're stories they made up or if they're based on true, like, um, stories that are now being, like, declassified or whatever because it's been so long and it's okay to put the information out there because it won't harm, like, um, like your government or whatever anymore if people know about the missions after a certain amount of time. But, like, basically one story is you're a guy who is going to prison for robbing a bank and they're like, hey, we need like dudes to do like the suicide mission so do you want to stay in solitary confinement for the rest of your life or do you want to go on a suicide mission and maybe live and so he's like okay so he signs up for it and then you 
go on this mission and you go behind enemy lines with just like one other dude and you like got to blow up their planes and then you got to go and raid their facilities and then you got to survive like waves of the dudes coming at you and those are the three levels and at the end of it you're just kind of like okay cool but then you move on to the next story and the next story is you're in norway which is kind of cool because you never really see anything from like what the or at least from when they usually teach world war ii in our school system they never really talk about what the scandinavian countries were up to and in this instance you're playing as a as a character who is living in nazi occupied norway and you're part of like a resistance fighter group who's fighting under the radar and you're like uh you're actually like a teenage girl and your mom works for a company that's being forced to produce an ingredient for atomic bombs that the nazis are trying to make and so you have to go try to help your mom escape and you do that and then you don't and then she pushes you off a bridge and then you, she's like take the documents to the place and you take them to the place but then you get captured again and then she's like oh but you know like go blow up the things and then you blow up the things and then you like find her again and then you watch her get shot and then it's over and you're like okay and then you move on to the last story which is your unit of um i think it's uganda is it uganda the african country that was owned by the french can't remember anyway dig it's it too deep of, for me <laughs> it's it's one of the african countries that were a french territory and so basically they enlisted a bunch of africans into the french military during world war ii basically telling them like hey french france is under attack and we need help and they're like oh we're french we speak french we should go help our french brethren and basically all these black soldiers from africa get to you know the front lines in world war ii and they're like here's some shovels go dig trenches you're doing our dirty work now and they basically get treated like crap and so they basically are like man why did we come here we thought we were the same and they're like nope that's apparently not how it is and we're gonna do all the dirty work while they go get all the glory and then your officer signs you guys up for like a suicide mission because unfortunately at that time they would have a lot of uh those type of battalions do more dangerous missions because you know this is before civil rights kind of happened and so i hate to say it but it's kind of a i guess one of those making a point kind of stories and i know they did that in battlefield one as well they wanted to tell a story from a different point of view kind of shed some light on some things that happened that weren't really correct but that they did happen and uh so your team gets signed up for kind of a suicide run on this villa and you're like okay let's go get it and you go do it and you actually succeed in taking like the artillery guns or whatever the first part was maybe it was a bunker and i think the second part was destroying artillery guns and so your unit's all like oh my god we did it we did what the french couldn't do and they're saying we're not french they're like let's do more and the guy's like, uh, no. He's like, I got a wife and kids at home. He's like, unless I get orders, I'm not going. And the other guy's like, no, we're French. We should show them how French we are. And so then you go take the artillery guns and then you go take the villa and then everybody dies except for like you. And then you're like, what have I done? <laughs> and then that's that. And that's the end of the story mode. And you're like, okay. And it's not bad. I like it. I like that they're telling different stories. I like, they're sh like that they're showing you know different things that have happened and i know a lot of the people who are into history and into that stuff and love that stuff and they love 
World War II and they love World War One and they love hearing about all the different stories that happened uh, that weren't necessarily the same thing that sh show all the time. But from a gameplay perspective, like you're playing a first person shooter and in most of these missions, you're playing kind of like stealth gameplay. It's like you're infiltrating a base or you're sneaking into a facility to extract somebody or you're you know wrapping around behind enemy lines to get into a flanking position to then launch the assault and i would say the third story was the most engaging because it had the most combat and that's what i expect from an fps game that's set in a war setting and so it was a little bit um i guess i'd say boring just like i played the game because i wanted to play an fps and i got kind of like sneaky stealth simulator kind of like hey you're more of like a stealth operative kind of do a sneaky mission thing and i was like okay well that's fine there's the multiplayer and then i went and played the multiplayer and that was fine at first it was fun but it really grew tiring after a while just because some of the features i enjoyed about the other entries weren't either as polished or as available in this one um a lot of the classes felt the same in my opinion because one thing i do like is they added squad revive so anybody in your squad can revive another player but one of my major complaints about battlefield one is that the semi-automatic rifles were available on the medic class and the semi-automatic rifle by far and large was the best gun overall in pvp because you can shoot people from a distance and you can shoot fast and the machine guns in World War One were obviously terribly inaccurate because they were the first iterations of machine guns and all they did was spray bullets really fast. So everybody would just play a medic and use the semi-automatic rifle so you didn't have anybody other than like medics and snipers on the field. And that kind of happened again in this game because basically all it is is just people with snipers and then people playing like assault. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was the maps or if it was the game modes, but it's something just didn't like click for me with this one and it just felt like something wasn't there okay um, yeah i feel like that's a pretty common sentiment with this one i don't think a lot of people were super high on it like i don't know if it, the weapons that they start you with don't feel very good and it takes a really long time to rank up and get other ones and so you don't end up wanting to try other ones because you just invested time into unlocking like upgrades for this one and i don't know it's one of those things where unless you're going to put a lot of time into the multiplayer you're probably not going to get a whole lot of enjoyment out of it or unless you have like a squad to play with otherwise a lot of times even though there's features in the game where you can like select an objective and be like hey we're going to this flag to capture it you know other people are probably just going to ignore you anyway and go do whatever they want and so you just like bash your head against this thing while everyone's just doing whatever they want, making no progress. And you're like, oh, okay. So I ended up playing, because normally what Battlefield's known for is their like 32 versus 32 conquest mode, like their big conquest. And that's where everyone holds a bunch of different objectives and you fight over them, kind of like King of the Hill style to hold them as long as you can to get the most points. And uh, uh, that's kind of their standard game mode. And I didn't even end up playing that a lot. I mostly played a game mode called Breakthrough, which in a way is more warlike because you have a line like a battle line and there's an objective on the other side you push into the enemy territory you capture the objective and the battle line moves forward and then you keep doing so until you get back to their main base and you capture it 
And then so vice versa, if you're the defender, your job is to keep them from progressing until like a certain amount of their reserve forces are wiped out. And once you've wiped out enough of their forces, they're forced to retreat. And so I ended up playing that game mode a lot more just because it was a lot more objective focused and it put a lot more of the people uh, around the same area. So that way it wasn't just like, oh, hey, I'm out here trying to do this thing and then I just get sniped by some dude like 400 meters off in a bush somewhere. Which is always my problem, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of what Battlefield is. People know that when they get into Battlefield generally, but at the same time, it just feels more like that than it did in any of the other Battlefields. I don't know if, again, it's the map design or just the, the play style of how they set up the classes this time, but it just heavily seems to favor the sniper characters in this one. Um, I don't know. All right. Let's finish up, Mike, with Horizon Zero Dawn. So I don't have a whole lot to say about it just yet. I pretty much just loaded it back up. Um, I'm just past, I don't know how many people have played the game, but quick spoiler coming up right here. Uh, At the very beginning of the game, after about a couple hours, you're going to get to the point where Aloy grows up. And then she's going to have to go prove herself to her clan in like a challenge. And the person who comes in first place in the challenge gets like one wish granted to them by the clan. And her wish is to become what's called a seeker. And the seeker is someone who basically has permission to go outside of the tribe boundaries. uh, Because normally that's forbidden. You have to stay in your own tribal lands unless you have permission. And the seeker basically has permission to do whatever they want. It's kind of like in Mass Effect when you become a specter or like, 007 you get your license to kill you can go do whatever you want as long as it's for the good of your tribe kind of type deal so you're basically like hey i'm on like a secret mission for my tribe to do something and it's going to benefit my tribe and so i like just got to that point where we played through the proving grounds some things hit the fan and uh, bad stuff happened i won't say exactly what because this is a very story driven game so i know people might be upset about it but uh I basically just got past that point. I just walked outside of the Nora lands and I climbed like my first like uh, giraffe tower guy. And that's pretty much where I left off so far. Gameplay feels good. I'm excited to get back into the world and explore outside of the Nora lands because this is where the game like really opens up. And uh, I'm excited to see what the game has to offer because I know a lot of people really highly rate this game and love this game. Yeah, I'm personally not much further than you are in the game made it a little past where you are i believe and my biggest issue with is i feel like going back now i would enjoy it more because it's it's a case of one of those games that like i can definitely tell that it's better than a lot of games but i played it right after breath of the wild because they came out at like the exact same time and yeah, just no, not being able to climb everything it's just it felt kind of archaic next right next to breath of the wild in my opinion yeah, especially a game in, like, a tribal setting where you're kind of like a hunter-gathering society who specializes in, like, foraging and living off the land. You think you would be kind of skilled in, like, rock climbing and stuff like that since you do a lot of climbing in this game. And you're like, oh, here's a rock face with lots of rocks, but I can't climb it. Yeah, kind of rough. But, yeah, I'm really excited to dig into this game. I actually even shelled out the extra 20 bucks to buy the... um for right now twenty dollars on the playstation store you can get the all-in-one edition that comes with the uh dlc pack and a dynamic theme and the soundtrack or whatever um total great value i'm super excited to play it um 
I think, however, this time I'm going to approach it. I'm going to try my best not to actually stray off and go do all the things as soon as I see them. I'll probably fail at that. But since I haven't played it in a long time, uh, I, I need to get like reacclimated to the controls. So I think it might be in my best interest to just proceed with the story until the like no turning back point. I know there's like a point in this game where you need to go like get allies and stuff. And I think that's what I might try to do is just try to put the blinders on and just go forward until they're like, hey, go get friends. And then I'm going to go do all the side stuff. Right, right. Okay, cool. Um, Jordan, if you don't disagree, I think we'll shelve what you and I have been playing, unless you have I've something you really want to talk stuff. about. Okay, yeah. I, I've been playing a couple new things, but I think after two and a half hours of Mike's great discussion, I will be able to talk about my stuff next week. <laughs> I've, I, I literally spent nine hours making a mage tower in Sims. Literally, that's it. That wow, the, what a guy. That's the only different thing I've had this week. Yeah, sorry it took up so much. I oh, no, it's fine. Playing a lot. Yeah, that, that I think that was perfect. But uh, like I said, in the interest of maybe keeping this under four hours, we will move on to the news, gentlemen. We have seven news items this week, and this came after I pared a couple news items down. Mike added one last second, so we'll talk about that one. It will should be good. But we'll start, as we always do, with Sony News number one. According to an article over on The Verge by Chaim Kettenberg, Sony has announced a new brand for all their first-party studios to live under, simply titled PlayStation Studios. Sporting a new logo and animation, PlayStation Studios will go live with the launch of the PlayStation 5 later this year and replace the already existing name Sony Interactive Entertainment Worldwide Studios. So I just feel like with this PlayStation 5, they are like drip-feeding news like crazy. Jason Schreier tweeted like, man, next thing you know, we're going to get the power power strip announcement for this. <laughs> uh, I, I like this, though. I think it's um, a lot simpler than Sony Interactive Entertainment Worldwide Studios. It gets the point across a little, little quicker. I do, too. Um too much to say but I, I was kind of like anticipating this uh like the amount of um of new info considering there was so little at the beginning of the year and i think we talked about this too about like they're probably just holding off everything until the new generation announcement and then they're right. gonna pile on afterwards try and, to hype people up and there's a rumor that that big thing is coming early june for the playstation 5 so We'll see if that's true or not, but I mean, it would make sense because if there was an E3 this year, that would probably be when the big blowout was, so June makes yeah. sense. All right, yeah, like you said, not too much to stay there, but um, news nonetheless, we will move on to number two. Straight from the PlayStation blog, Sony will be holding a 18-minute state of play tomorrow, Thursday the 14th, at 3 p.m. Eastern, focusing solely on Sucker Punch's upcoming game, Ghost of Tsushima. This is really good news for the masses because after years of talking about this game and it finally coming out on July 17th, nobody really knows what this game is as we have not really seen extended gameplay outside of the main character walking around a bit. No, a couple of E3s ago they showed like a boss fight, but it has been like we really have not seen anything about this game. 
Um, but I digress a bit. While I know Sony needs to get both the Ghost of Tsushima and The Last of Us Part Two out before the PlayStation 5 launches later this year, it seems weird that Sony would fire off two big exclusives like this so close together. It will be interesting to see if one of them are not very good and that they're trying to cover for the other one by doing this. Um, that's just something I've been kind of reading and agree with. Um, like I said, it's just it's not very Sony-like to do this. They usually like to spread. They usually have like two or three big releases throughout the year and they spread them out. Again, I know this year they're kind of in a weird spot with the PlayStation 5 coming out, but it does just seem weird that they would launch these so close together. I feel like you could, I mean, if the PlayStation 5 is coming out holiday holiday 2020, you assume that would be like November. Like this game could come out in like August or September and be fine, especially when you consider like in the past, like God of War 2 came out for the PlayStation 2 after the PlayStation 3 launched. I don't get what they're in a hurry for, but... Maybe I'm just overthinking it. What what do you guys think? I think that it might not necessarily be a safe uh, uh, an instance of one of the games being bad. I think they could be looking at it from a standpoint of you know a lot of times when they push new hardware, especially in like this last console generation, I feel like a lot of the consoles, even even Sony at first, was kind of left in limbo. They had like maybe one or two exclusive games at first and it took and obviously third party titles but it really took a while for games to come out like i didn't even get convinced to get a playstation 4 until over a year after it came out when destiny released and that's when i first got one is because i was like there's like it's like okay there's infamous and there's like one or two other games that i can't get anywhere else it's like i think i can wait before i drop like 400 bucks you know and i think they could be looking at it that way it's like okay so how can we get the people who aren't going to get, you know, PS5 right away. And especially with everything that's happened with production out east with the coronavirus and stuff, maybe this is partly also why they're doing it now is, uh, you know, they're having trouble manufacturing. So, like, for instance, switch shortages are huge all across the world right now, especially out east. And I could see there being a lack of Xbox, you know, Series X and PS5 also manufacturing due to this uh and them not being ready in time for fall release so maybe they're planning on trickling them out and in the meantime they're gonna be like hey you couldn't get your hands on ps5 but ghost of tsushima and uh last of us 2 are both awesome maybe you should play those in the meantime you know i can see that too yeah an interesting point uh, I think worth noting too, Sony also said that this is specifically focused on Ghost of Tsushima. There will be no PlayStation 5 news during this. So, but yeah, I'm interested to see because the game has a setting that I'm really interested in, but um, I just don't know anything about it. So we'll have to wait and find out. Yeah, from what I've heard about the setting, I, I think I read at one point, I could be wrong, maybe they changed it, but I believe the idea was that it's feudal Japan but it's in an alternate reality where the Mongols actually succeeded in invading and taking over Japan. Uh, they tried, I think, twice and got destroyed by a hurricane both times because they didn't understand like the monsoon season weather of the island country. And so their, their entire like invading fleet just got wiped out by weather and they had to give up. So I think this game is supposed to be set where the Mongols actually do show up and the weather was fine and then they do invade and they do take over. And then the ghost of Tsushima, you know, are the people who are like revolting and trying to take back their country. So it's probably like ninja and samurai who are like leading a resistance to oust the Mongol invaders who took over. And if that's the case, I think that could be a really cool like what if scenario for 
history as well as fantasy. And Sucker Punch has also done, got a pretty good track record with their games too. The Sly series and the Infamous series were both really good, so I'm excited to see what they have in store for us. For sure. Let's move on, number three, to some Microsoft news. Microsoft had their crapshoot of an inside Xbox event last week, showing off, as I put in quotes, gameplay of 13 third-party Xbox games. My information for this comes from a write-up from IGN's Joe Scribbles. Sadly, the most exciting information from this event was the fact that 10 of these 13 games are what Xbox calls smart delivery titles, meaning that if you buy them on your existing Xbox One, the title will update to the Xbox Series X version of the game for free should you decide to purchase the machine down the line. Don't buy a PC. They should... um, The reason I called this event a bit of a crapshoot is the fact that the game um, didn't really show off actual gameplay, instead showing off in-engine pre-rendered trailers. Assassin's Creed was a huge offender of this, so much so that both Xbox and Ubisoft has apologized. Xbox even went as far to say that they did not properly manage expectations. Listen, developers and publishers, if, if you say you're showing off gameplay, I feel there should at least be five minutes of uninterrupted footage of your game being played. In-engine trailers are not it. If that's all you have, be honest. Stop lying to us. I'm glad, like, video gamers come across as entitled a lot, but I'm, like, we got to stand up to these companies because they just, like, they just lie straight to our faces so many times. Like, they need to be called out. Anyway, that rant out of the way. Here are the games shown off, which admittedly a couple have piqued my interest a bit. Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Bright Memory Infinite, an FPS and action game that is already available on Steam. Call of the Sea, the most interesting looking game in my opinion. Very stylized art style that looks like a painting. It's an adventure game sent in 1930 that has you exploring the South Pacific Island as Nora looking for your husband. Chorus, a space combat shooter. Dirt 5, a racing game with a story mode. Madden NFL 21, touchdown. Scarlet Nexus, an anime action game. Scorn, a game that uh, I feel like it was announced back when this current gen was announced. I don't know if it was quite that early, but it was announced a while ago. Either way, it's a first-person horror adventure game and looks stunningly beautiful, um, admittedly. Second Extinction, another game I'm excited about. And to my personal like small group of friends, I feel like this is probably the one I've seen the most about. Kind of looks like a Left 4 Dead kind of game with dinosaurs. The Ascent, an isometric RPG that takes place in a cyberpunk world. It can be played single-player or multiplayer. The Medium, a psychological horror game. Vampira, The Masquerade Bloodlines 2, the sequel to the cult classic RPG. And Yakuza, Like a Dragon, the seventh RPG in the franchise that, if I read this right, is now switching to turn-based combat, which seems really interesting considering a lot of like turn-based combat games are moving away from turn-based. Um, but either way, if you'd like to see more information on any of these games or watch the trailers, I highly recommend giving Joe Sturbles the click over at IGN. Did anything catch your interest out of this, guys, or do you just really not care? <laughs> uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2 seems really cool, especially since it's such a big gap in, in time between the first and uh, when they plan on releasing this one. And, like, I think the only thing that held back the original game was, like, the technology available at the time. Because it was, it was straight up just, like, Dungeons and Dragon mechanics sort of things. And I, I talked about it on the podcast before, like what it does like really 
Like, it does some really awesome things where, like, depending on what type of vampire you have will change the dialogue options you have available when you're talking with people to the point where, like, you can choose to be this, like, charming vampire that kind of talks his way out of every situation and stuff like that. Or you could just be, like, one of the Nosferatu kind of people that you have to live in the sewers because you're so mutated that if you peered in public, you would be immediately gunned down by the policeman walking around. So you have to... There's a sewer system under the cities that you go to, and you have to go through there and, like, eat rats instead of, like, feasting on people and stuff like that. Because you're literally so hideous, you would instantly be outed as a vampire, and they would kill you on sight. So it's like you choose the kind of difficulty you want to play the game at. You want to be the guy that everyone likes, or do you want to be the guy that's shot on sight? And you have to play the game differently because of that. You have to come out, like, during... Well, obviously, you're it's at night, but you can come out during a... You, you have to choose which part of the the city to come up where, like, there's not a lot of police presence at the time. So, you know, you're not killed instantly. Because guns hurt in this game, even though you're a supernatural entity. Uh, so, yeah, it's a cult favorite for, for a reason, and I'm excited for it. Uh, Scarlet Nexus, I've always been looking for an anime action game that, you know, I, I need to get Code Vein, but I'm not getting it until it's on sale. It's just that itch that needs to be scratched by something every once in a while, and there's not a lot of stuff unless you're into JRPGs. So, and, which I'm into, but you know, I'd also like an action variant of it that's not just uh, another uh, Dynasty Warriors uh, skin. Yeah, that's if you haven't, you should check out Near Automata. I think you'd love it, Jordan. I've heard about that, and I think I think Seth has it actually. So maybe I might play it. I know in Soul Calibur, the the main character was transferred over to that. She's a playable character in that too. So, but is she the main character, Jordan? But is she? I, I know it's she's like they've got to play and find out. There's like 17 okay. endings to the game. You never know when it could change. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, that is really neat. I actually picked up that game for like five bucks on a sale. Just I've never played it, but I've heard nothing but great things. I would really recommend um, if you're not a fan of the um, man. What was the other series called? Basically, the creator had a series of shoot 'em ups, and this is supposed to be like a sequel in a way to those, or at least a lot of the content is a nod to those. So a lot of the side quests might have information explaining things about those games. But um, for me, as someone who wasn't into those games. Um, I would highly recommend just play on easy and play through the story and you're going to have an awesome time. And you do have to play the game uh, three times because things are different each time. And I don't mean a little different. I mean a lot different. All right. We will move on to number four. Straight from the Xbox Twitter page. Uh, Halo 2 Anniversary Edition is now available in the PC version of the Master Chief Collection. You can purchase the collection on Steam and the Xbox app, or you can get it as part of your Games Pass for PC subscription. This is available today as of we're recording the 13th. So if you're listening to this podcast, you can get out there and download it now. We're, we're getting closer, boys. Halo 3 is next. And then all is right in the world of multiplayer Halo on PC. Hooray. Yeah. I'm uh, eagerly forward to it. Yeah, that was more of just a quick little PSA, so not too much to say there. Uh, definitely 
Halo 2, one of the more pivotal first-person shooters, I feel, in the genre. Either way. Moving on to some Nintendo news. Number five, Matthew Harden over at GameIndustry.biz reports that the Nintendo Switch has now sold over 55 million units worldwide as of the end of the physical year that ended in uh, March or May. One of the two. I didn't write it down. But um, this number was reached with incredibly strong titles that supported the system. The system now has an impressive over 27 mil or 27 titles over the 1 million units sold mark. This is uh, specifically supported by the launch of Animal Crossing that has sold over 11.7 million copies in 11 days during a lockdown, meaning that most of that is digitally. And Pokemon Sword and Shield that sold 17.37 million copies. Other games that performed well but were not given specific numbers in this article were Luigi's Mansion 3 and Super Mario Maker 2. It is clear that Nintendo is still out here swinging in ways beating their competition on the game front. According to a tweet by a longtime video game, I put this in quotes, reporter. It's not really a reporter anymore. He does a podcast and all that, but um, Colin Moriarty. Top-selling PlayStation 4 exclusives are Uncharted 4, Spider-Man, God of War, The Last of Us Remastered, Horizon Zero Dawn, and Grand Turismo Sports in that order. In six weeks, in just six weeks, Animal Crossing has outsold every single one of those titles except uncharted 4 that he notes it will likely outsell in just a few weeks i don't know if that means anything specifically but it goes to show that switch owners are buying first party games more than playstation users although like i said don't know what that means because playstation 4 has less first party offerings throughout a year but more third party games but nonetheless the nintendo switch is the system that just is (laughs) still going i'm not surprised by this if anything uh Veering away from our anti-console rhetoric, if you were going to buy a console, I would tell you to get a Switch. <laughs> like, like straight up. Like, if you're not interested in any PS4 exclusives, me, I, I love Persona 5, so... And, and they didn't do what I wanted, which was transferred over to Switch, in which case I would be playing it every day, all the time, no matter what. Uh, just get a Switch. If, if you have kids... It transfers over easily. There's tons of multiplayer games for that. Uh, like I, I used this story on the podcast before, but like when a when a dad came up to me and asked which multiplayer games he could play with his son, like his young son that was on the Xbox One, I was like, I was I was struggling. I was like, I I really don't have much to tell you right now. So I would give him a whole list. I even told him, it was like, hey, look, like if if you're thinking about this sort of thing in the future you might want to invest in getting a switch because it's it's way way more friendly when it comes to uh multiplayer and and children with adults so and in the and the uh what was it um animal crossing thing didn't surprise me at all like at first it did but like it's gonna sound weird saying this but it was it's kind of it, it was released in a fortunate time and it got a lot of attention. And for some reason, every Animal Crossing person that loved the game in the first place or played the mobile game and were hooked on it before the the actual release of uh, New Horizons, uh, they they beefed it up like that, the amount of um, exposure to it. Like, you were hearing about it everywhere. People that I knew that didn't even, like, game seriously were telling me about it. I'm like, oh. like, like, if my sister brings up a new uh, release, I know I'm like, huh, this is pretty popular, isn't it? Because she's not into, like, the gaming news at all. So if she's like, hey, have you heard about 
uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons? Like, yes, but how did you hear about it? And then she'll explain it to me. I'm like, oh, that's pretty, that, that's actually really awesome. So. so what you're telling me is your family doesn't support the podcast you're on. My family does not support the podcast <laughs> at all. <laughs> I don't know. I know half of yours do, but uh, I don't know if, uh, I know your grandmother does. Uh, my grandma Judy sister. likes every thing we talk about. Shout out to Grandma Judy. Shout out to Grandma Judy. <laughs> All right. Let's keep going then. Moving on to other news, number six. And I think this is the biggest news of the week, boys. On the Birdman himself's 52nd birthday, it was announced that Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1 and 2 will be receiving a remastered version. And it will be coming very soon on September 4th for PS4, Xbox One, and PC on the Epic Games Store. Word comes from IGN's Jonathan Dornbush. Uh, He reports that Activision's Vicarious Visions is handling the port, the same team that has recently done the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy and Crash Team Racing Nitro Fuel. This has me so excited because this team understands what makes these old games great and rebuilds them with all the love and care. That is shown in the fact that they are talking about how the feel of Tony Hawk Pro Skater 4 is what people think about when they think about Tony Hawk Pro Skater. And that is what they are going to be putting into these remakes. Um, again, they kind of talked about the balance, how people think about... When people think about Tony Hawk Pro Skater, likely they're thinking about how the later games play, but they're thinking about the earlier levels. Yeah, So absolutely. it's just really good that they're blending this together. Um, you'll be doing things like verts, wall kicks, everything like that that wasn't necessarily available in 1 and 2 you'll be able to do so that's really cool all the levels and challenges from the first games will return along with new challenges the game will also support online play although not much was said about specifics other than that will support a flushed out version of the creative character uh create a skater in creative parts however i will say if i can't play horse online i will riot but i feel like you're going to be able to play all those mode online i know um for Couch Co-op, you'll be able to play split-screen on all versions of the game as well. If you care about this at all, check out the video for the game that shows the side-by-side shots of the new graphics and old. It's hype. There are three versions of the game. The base game will be a budget title at $39.99, US dollars, but you can also get a digital deluxe version of the game for $49.99, US dollars, or a collector's version of the game that comes with the digital deluxe version of the game, and a Birdhouse 2 skate deck for $999. US However, this version is needlessly and annoyingly lacking a god PC version, boys. Um, very frustrating. Any digital pre-orders include the warehouse demo that will be released sometime before the game comes out. Let me mark down when I swore at 251. So what do you think? Were you guys into Tony Hawk? I feel like I should have had Nick on for this conversation. I'm super hyped. I think Jack Black also posted, um, I think him and Tony Hawk got together and did some gameplay for it. Yeah, they had him, I watched the video, they had him playing the like warehouse version and then they went to like a skate park and we watched Jack Black like roll for a couple minutes. It was kind of fun. Nice. I'll have to check that out later. I... I really enjoyed, you know, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 1, 2, 3, and I also really enjoyed, uh, I think it was American Wasteland on the PS2. I think that's what it was called. Those are all excellent, and I get what you're saying, too, about, like, people expect the feel of 4, but the gameplay of, you know, like, 1 and 2 
and uh, especially like two, I think was like one of the best or highest rated games of all time on PlayStation or PlayStation Two. And so from that era, it's like a big deal. You got to make sure you nail the game, but also the gameplay. And I even like uh, Jordan said, like people I never see talking about games are blowing up on social media being like yo guys tony hawk pro skater and they're like oh but it better have dual stick controls like skate or i'm out and what's like i guess it makes sense they're like you know you got to have the most modern type of control otherwise you know for a game like that where it's all about control input it's got to feel good when you do it if you got those old school tank controls it's not gonna fly I was about to say, and honestly, the team that Activision has on this, I'm not worried. They did such a great job with Crash Bandicoot that I would, until they prove me wrong, I trust Vicarious Visions with anything. Okay, boys, let's finish up the news. Mike, you added this one later. Uh, Number seven, I have it simply marked here as Bloodstained DLC Issues Add to um, Existing Issues. Uh, I will be reading directly from Destructoid.com's Chris Carter as I have the um, thing up. So the big issue here is Bloodstained Ritual of the Night just launched its Zengetsu and Randomizer DLC on PS4, PC, and Xbox One. But you may have noticed an omission, the Black Sheep port of the family, the Nintendo Switch. Originally, the date for the Switch was the end of May or beginning of June, but that has since changed a few times. Confusingly, as in the case with this game's marketing in general, a tweet went out that said that the Switch update was coming next week, but has since been deleted. So, um, it should be noted that this game, like, has notoriously just lagged behind on Switch. Like, they are not great at this, and Mike was saying earlier that, like, just in general, they're not good at communicating anything, so it's It's kind of disappointing to see that this is going on. A follow-up notes that, quote, Sorry, had dates mixed up. Zengatsu is coming to the Switch at the end of the month. My apologies. Dates are often mixed up in kickstarting updates as well, leading to the correction for when the content may arrive. For those of you holding out for a free update to hit hit Switch, heed the warnings um, of the folks that downloaded it already and have located a pretty big glitch. So not only is this game out for, like, some, um, apparently... It's bugged for those that do have it. Gosh, this just sounds like a mess. The DLC requires players to finish the true ending slash boss before unlocking it. But even if you already did that, it still might not unlock after you finish it after acquiring the update. So word of warning, according to the article. um, Don't save over your endgame file with a new game plus. And if you need to, get to the very end and save outside the final boss door. Woo! interesting yeah I, I was one of the people who backed bloodstained i have yet to play it which is kind of crazy you back a game and you haven't played i did play in platinum ukulele a long time ago because i backed that as well um this is a game i do want to get into soon i've actually been looking at uh doing it as part of my games i've been backlog busting um i probably won't do it right after horizon because Horizon's going to be a little bit of a bigger game so i might try to tackle something smaller after that something more bite-sized but after that, I've been feeling like a good action hack and slash kind of Castlevania type game would be good. But uh, I thought, you know, I, I receive email updates from Ega's uh, uh, studio periodically. I think he does an update like once every month in my email. And I just thought it might be interesting to bring this up because it's kind of sad. I mean, at the same time, it's like I understand that in this case, they are 
kind of quote unquote an indie developer because this is a guy who left a huge company like Konami and funded his own uh, production company uh, and is making the game that he wants to make that basically Konami wouldn't let him make anymore. And mm-hmm. uh, the sad thing is, though, that, you know, they met all these stretch goals and now they're constantly falling behind on making them. And uh, I don't know if it's a management issue or if they're just a little over expectatious about you know what they can do with their time and stuff but i mean we'll see where it goes i guess as long as people get what they paid for i don't see a reason to complain too much but it is kind of crappy that it's like oh some people are getting it and other people aren't and like you know i'm kind of for the proponent of like get it done and then put it out because otherwise you're just gonna have people upset for sure also worth noting if you are interested in this game i have it downloaded on my pc it is part of the xbox games pass program so look out there boys if we've got nothing else to say we will move on to the next section of the show we have no emails this week but jordan if you wanted to email us where could you do that you can email us at rotakumoc at gmail.com that is b-r-o-t-a-k-u-m-o-c at g-m-a-i-l dot c O-M. Boys, for the first time in a long time, we have a giveaway this week that I was teasing last week. So, I'm a huge fan of the game Hollow Knight. I think it is one of the best games easily in the past decade, but ever made. Uh, it is a 2D um, Metroidvania, almost more Souls-like game. I think it is incredible. It's very good. I wanted to support the game. So Team Cherry, the developers, got together with Materia Collective and released Hollow Knight The Piano Collections, which is sheet music for the game's um, main soundtrack, including uh, the tracks Dirt Mouth, Crossroads, Green Path, Hornet, Reflections, Mantis Lord, City of Tears, which is incredible, um, Resting Grounds, Dung Defender, Queen's Gardens, White Palace, Sealed Vessel, Radiance, Hollow Knight and the Grim Trope. So this is the piano sheet music. And I sent the order and they sent me an email saying that it shipped. It was like three or four weeks and I just emailed them and I was like, hey, I haven't gotten my copy still. I realized that everything going on with the coronavirus, I just, I don't know what's up. I just want to make sure it didn't get lost somewhere. Well, they did a little digging. It got lost and they said, hey, we're going to send you a new one. If the other one comes... Don't worry about it on the house. Do what you will with it. Give it to somebody, whatever you want. So I ended up getting both copies. So we will be giving away the Hollow Knight Piano Collections. I will randomly select a winner, and we will announce it on next week's podcast. The ways you can sign up to win this, I will have a post on our Facebook page. That is Brotaku Men of Culture. Uh, You can like that post. That will get you an entrance. You can share that post. That will get you another entrance. And for a third possibility, so you can sign up up to three times for three chances to win, um, if you send us an email with comments, questions, concerns, ideas, topic ideas, anything of the sorts, we will enter you for a third one. So this is the Hollow Knight Piano Collections book. I haven't even opened my copy yet, so, but, man, it looks pretty, and I love Hollow Knight. So awesome stuff, gentlemen. Mike, you are here mainly this week, aside from talking to us what you've been playing for two and a half hours, which is awesome. 
but let's talk for another two and a half hours. Boys, we're talking Dungeons and Dragons. Bust out your D20, nerds. Mike, what is Dungeons and Dragons? So Dungeons and Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game that came out back in, I believe it was the 70s. Uh, it grew to popularity more in the 80s, um, especially because at the beginning of it come out, it was highly demonized by people of like the Christian faith and politicians because of imagery used in the game. Um, but later on, people really got into it. Um, it kind of fell off a bit after like 3rd slash 3.5 edition, and 4th uh, edition is kind of notably a low point in the series, but some people really like it. Uh, I personally had always been interested in playing when I was really young, but it was one of those things where my parents were like, we'd go to the hobby store and I'd see the figures and I'd be like, oh, I want that. And they'd be like, no, that's expensive. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then, uh, but later on life, when I got my own money, I was like, I'm going to try this when some of my friends were playing and asked me to join them. And now I'm crazy about it and I love it. Okay, okay. Uh, basically, like, uh, the game, the premise is, is you can either make a character and be somebody, and pretty much anything you can think about doing, you can do. There's just a set of rules uh, called the Player's Handbook and, like, the Dungeon Master's Guide that if you're, for example, like, I want to climb that wall, then someone can cite a rule from that book that's like, hey, this is the, the like, math you do to determine how much you can climb at this speed, and, like, okay, well, I want to like rob this person they're like okay well this is what you need to do to do that and so it's kind of just like a simulation type game for people who want to role play as someone else uh typically in a fantasy style setting most of the adventures are written from like a hero perspective like if you're like i want to be a paladin and go on a crusade and slay undead and defeat like an evil lich there's a campaign for that and um it's just kind of the most immersive I would say in fun, like open-ended gaming experience, you could probably ever have in terms of like doing what you want to do in a game. Okay, so that kind of answers the question: Why do you like Dungeons and Dragons? Um, Jordan, feel free to chime in with any of this. I mean, we can pull it in because we both play Dungeons and Dragons with Mike as a DM, and maybe we can touch on it a little later. I just wrote down a couple questions to steer the conversation. So at any point. Like, Mike, you have a question for me or Jordan, or Jordan, you have another question for Mike. Um, just interject. Um, but if not, we'll kind of just keep going for now. Uh, when, And I guess this is a question you can both ask, but we'll start with you, Mike. When was the first time you played Dungeons & Dragons? The first time I actually ever played Dungeons & Dragons is probably back in... It would have been around, like, 2012... It was like right after I started working at the job I have now, and um, uh, my brother and one of his friends were talking about how they were playing D&D, but they wanted to find another group to play with, and I was like, oh, that'd be so cool, and I'm like, I want to play that so bad, and I'm like, I, I know I'll make a game and we'll play it, and I made probably one of the worst, most terrible D&D games ever, and we played it, and then people didn't want to play anymore, and then <laughs> that was like the last time I played for years, and then I started playing again like two years ago. Uh, and this is where I, I really caught on to it and started um, playing consistently was uh, uh, our friends Matt and Derek, who's also been mentioned, and Derek's been featured on the podcast just last week, and I think Matt's getting featured next week, so you'll get to meet him soon. Both great people. Um, they invited me to play with Derek's older brother, Ryan, who was running a campaign, and they're like, hey, we need an extra person. Can you come fill in tonight? And I was like, sure. 
had a great time. We had fun. They wanted me to come back and it started to become kind of a recurring thing. And then, uh, I know, um, uh, Ryan wanted to try playing a character one time and I was like, Hey, I, I got this module that I heard is like super good. I'm like, anyone can run it if they want. And they're like, well, why don't you run it? And I'm like, okay. So then that's when I started DMing. Um, I would also say I had some experience with um, role-playing games outside of d and I mean, they're mostly based on d and I haven't played a lot of the other uh, role-playing games, such as like Pathfinder or, or Call of Cthulhu or um, Starfinder and stuff. But, uh, for example, I played like a One Piece variant of D&D, and me and my friends are currently in the works on like rewriting the rulebook for it to make it more... Uh, similar to the D&D rules so that it's more streamlined and makes more sense. Um, and we had a lot of fun with that. And we had a campaign going in that for like two years, which I know Aaron has a character. And he's still around. We haven't played it in a while uh, just because we don't want to play until we've finished rewriting the rules because we've kind of gotten to a point where there's like a lot of rules that do make sense and a lot of rules that don't make sense. And it's kind of making a mess in the game world when we're making characters. And some characters that you make have gotten to a point where like the amount of like armor and damage is absolutely ridiculous and we want to kind of reel it in and make it more balanced but yeah Aaron's character Eli Keel is still alive nice Uh, yeah and I I made this one piece character I was all like I'm gonna be the most stereotypical pirate I can I can dream of and that was how I played him for the one time I played him I've heard he's done some cool things since though he has yes he he uh, took out like an entire battalion of troops with uh because he's like the master at arms on our um, and the helmsman of our pirate ship. Because he's the only one who's like an actual professional pirate. So uh, he uh, manages like the cannons or what you would call the guns on the ship and driving the ship. And he has a special superpower um, that gives him like an omniscient eye. So he's able to aim and shoot all the cannons at the same time because he can see in like all directions at the same time. So he like killed everybody at one time with a cannon volley because he could aim all the cannons individually. What a baller. What Pretty a baller. Um, I'm going to interject real quick. I remember the first time I played D&D, um, we were playing. We had actually, my dad had the very original rule book, like setting for back when he played back in the day. And we thought we were going to show up that day and read this rule book and just start playing. That didn't happen. So we ended up buying fourth edition because that was the edition that was out right now. And we played that for a while and we had a good time. Like we had an okay time, but fourth edition definitely less left less up to the imagination um it was definitely a little more straightforward with what you could do or at least that's how it felt to us um it wasn't until i started playing i played 3.5 a couple times pathfinder and then 5e i feels like when i really fell in love with dungeons and dragons it was just a little more open and i think it's really important too that you just have to have a good dm i mean for example, and shout out to Josh. I love Josh to death. He's my homie. But like playing with Josh, you were stuck in a hole with gelatinous cubes for four hours and you couldn't get out. And he was breaking weapons that other DMs would have given us just so we couldn't get out of the situation. And I think maybe we can touch, maybe this is a good time to ask the question, like what do you think makes a successful DM? I think part of the reason I love playing with you as a DM and part of the reason why I love Dungeons & Dragons so much today is you don't tell us no a lot. Like, unless it's completely absurd, you let us do what we want to do in the game, or at least try. So, yeah, what I have to say about that is a lot of that can come down to the expectation 
and I, I've listened to a lot of different opinions on this. Uh, simply due to my first time DMing, uh, it was like, why is this a failure? Why did it not work? Um, you know, why didn't people like it? And I follow uh, different guys on like YouTube, for example, who are like professional DMs and stuff, and they have like a successful web series. Um, my favorite by far, highly recommend them, highly recommend you check it out. If you're ever interested in Dungeons and Dragons, look up the Dungeon Dudes on YouTube. I believe they also have their uh, web series on like SoundCloud and, and iTunes and stuff. Um, they do an excellent job explaining the game. They explain lots of rules. They explain um, like situations you could get into and like what to do in those situations or how to deal with uh, questions like this where you're like, okay, so you know, why do we let people do these things? It's like, okay, well, it's a role-playing game. You want to play a role. You want to play this character, and you want to be able to do these things. And so a lot of times, you got to ask yourself, like, why are we here? Why are we playing this game? Because we want to have fun. And that's the point, is the point of playing a game with your friends is to have fun with your friends. And it's not fun to get told no all the time. And so this is kind of the mentality I've adopted ever since that first campaign I wrote like eight, nine years ago is, you know, back when I wrote that one, it was like super railroady. And I was like, I have this story and I'm going to tell this story. And that's just wrong. And like, there's a time and a place to tell a story, but ultimately you got to remember that you're not the only person playing and it, and that other people are there to do something too. And the best answer to any question that a player can ask from the DM's perspective. And I a hundred percent agree with this mentality is, is, as long as it's not impossible, the answer is always yes. Uh, and a lot of that can come down to whatever the rules say or just whatever you agreed on beforehand. And a lot of that has to do with, again, like I said, the expectations. Like when you come to the table to play with people, some people have different expectations for what they want the experience to be. Like some people, like Josh, for example, he might not be a bad DM, He's just a DM who really loves like tough combat encounters and all he wants to do is make like combat that's really challenging and might try to kill you guys and that's what he wants to do. And you guys might have wanted to, like you said, for example, have more say in what's going on. You want more of a personal story. You might want more influence over the world around you and he might not have wanted that. And so that's something, you know, the expectation wasn't set before the, the setting. And so that's why we had like the session zero is what they call it. Before we even played, we got together. We talked about, like, what do people want from this game? What do you want to do in the game? And, like, what things are we okay and not okay with doing in the game? Like, what kind of content is allowed and not allowed? And I know it's tough to keep track of. And I've also fallen through on, like, some people are like, hey, don't treat me like this. And I completely forget that I'm, like, hanging out with some of my other friends. And I upset one person because I, I treated them like one of my other friends who they were like, hey, I told you not to do that. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. They're like, well, I don't want to come back. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, I mean, I'm not infallible. I'm not the best person ever. But, I mean, that's just how it is. Like, you got to find the right people to play with. And a lot of that has to do with expectation. Right. And, and to your point of expectation, I guess I think back to my early sessions that I played. And, and again, it's talking to people, knowing what everybody wants. Because when I think of it, that, that first, like, main campaign I played, uh, Josh, Nick, myself, and I believe Matt Slade a couple times, we all took turns DMing in the same world. And especially with Nick and Josh, a lot of times, like their ideas of the story they were telling 
like Josh was trying to tell a certain story and then Nick would come in when he did it and be like, so what Josh is, what the story Josh is telling is what people believe. The story I'm telling is like actually what's happening. And like, again, not necessarily that either person's wrong, but maybe like if, if everybody's not on the same page, you definitely need to just pick, uh, my suggestion would be pick one person and let them run it because it'll be more coherent in the long run. That, or you just really need to communicate. Like, um, for example, uh, me, Matt, and Derek, when we're running our One Piece game, we all do exactly that, where we take turns DMing, and it helps a lot more, I feel, in the One Piece setting. Uh, for those of you who don't know, One Piece is a story about pirates. They go to different islands. Different things happen on those different islands. So when one person DMs, it's, hey, our ship landed on this new island, and it's all this new stuff there. So you're not, like, stomping all over whatever your buddy just did last session, you know. And that's something you also kind of have to talk to people about before. Like, I've run games that are intertwined with other people's campaigns, and even one of our campaigns, um, for example, I'm running Curse of Strahd for you guys right now, and... Uh, that's going to run into another campaign I have set up with our other group. And I've told them beforehand, like, hey, at some point, these campaigns are going to intersect and they're going to be intertwined somehow. So, like, I let them know ahead of time, like, things will change. And also, uh, the other Curse of Strahd game I was running in the past, it's on hold right now because we uh, someone else wanted to run something and, and we were totally fine with taking turns. And so I was like, yeah, cool, I'll put it on the back burner for now while you do your thing that you made. And... Uh, so whenever we get back to that, that one's also set in the same world as another campaign we were doing. So, you know, from a lore perspective, it's like, hey, if we ever come back from this, our characters are still going to be there. And in like 20 years in the future or whatever, in the new campaign that we're running now with Ryan's group, like basically like an atomic bomb got dropped on Baldur's Gate and all of our old characters died. So uh or are supposedly dead or we don't 100 percent know but it, it's they just wake we, up in skyrim well basically one of my characters started like a mercenary company and we became one of the most powerful organizations in the world and we kind of had to retcon that so he, he had uh space warriors nuke us <laughs> so now so now it's like 20 30 years after that and so it's like it's kind of implied that our characters are either dead or old enough now that they're no longer in fighting condition to go adventuring so It'll kind of raise the question where if, like, our, our other Curse of Strahd campaign finishes off to talk to Ryan, I'm pretty sure he'll be cool with it. But I'll be like, look, we won't play our other characters, but they're going to be in the world. And they can be, like, NPCs we can talk to. And my character's company, the enormous company, mercenary company, was, uh, uh, you know, around. So I'll probably still have them there in the lore. But I don't want to trample all over what Ryan did. So if I ever continue that story beyond that curse of strahd session i'll try to if not you'll just have to eu your own universe right (laughs) so a a lot of that also just has to do with like everyone has their own story they want to tell and and i think that is the mentality that kind of kills the game and that's what ruined my first experience with D, is you got to be willing to work with everybody because it's it's a multiplayer game you're not sitting at a table playing by yourself everybody's there to if you're a player character there, you're there to tell your story. You're there to tell your backstory and intertwine it with the backstories of the other characters there in your party. And the DM is basically there to play referee and make sure that everybody's following the agreed upon rules that you followed or house rule things based on what people perceive to be fun or not fun. And then make sure everybody's having a good time. 
and you know as long as you talk to everybody and you're like hey man i know you did this thing in the last campaign i didn't like that and if they're not willing to budge on that then i'd say the best thing you can do then is like barovia for example is in a demiplane all of a sudden your characters are sucked into a demiplane everything that happens here doesn't affect the other campaign and we can leave at any time you know there's stuff like that in the game you can do right on jordan when was the first time you played dungeons and dragons to say it's probably with you guys and i remember thinking like first of all when i first played world of warcraft i was like i was still trying to stay out of the the nerd hole because i was like going at the middle school i had a lot of troubles with it and i was like when i was playing world of warcraft it's like well at least like there's still a rock bottom of like nerddom and that's like dungeons and dragons and then i started playing dungeons and dragons and i'm like okay i'm in it for the long haul um got time to commit jordan yeah, I think I just joined. It's funny that you say guys. that because you've just been a full-blown nerd since as long as I've yeah. known you. I've accepted it 100% <laughs> now. It, a deep dive. Uh, and then I played with you guys for a little bit. I still didn't really know what to do. I remember my first character was a, a half-orc. Uh, and it, it was really fun. I loved playing the the character. I loved the backstories of it and things like that. And just creating a character and like and modifying it and that that's when i was kind of like really metagaming because the first time i play a game i kind of want to like break it but the second time i played was over one of my friends house and they said that they noticed that i played dungeons and dragons like hey do you want to come over and join ours yeah cool and like we have this new dm and she's just starting off and we want to play one of her stories and they were like really experienced Dungeons and dragon players they've, they've played for a really long time and she's a new dm so like they can kind of like teach her you know when to pick things up when to keep going stuff like that and i played myself this time uh and that was fun and then the same group we switched a dm and a new story because she we had caught up with like what she had prepared for her story because i think they were like they were like co-dming like she was new and like she had the main story and then someone would like help illustrate and like and enunciate some of the things that were happening so that was really cool too to see that um and in the new campaign i played opposite of myself so i was super role playing i was like i was playing a chaotic evil character and that was like that was when i was hooked on D D. it's like before it was like I would I would go, but then I was like, it I would only go because they were up the street from me, and I, like I was obligated to go at that point. But once I started actually role playing in the game, that's when I was hooked with it, with Dungeons and Dragons, like as a whole. I was like, this is super fun. So ever since then, I like I I've, I've been thinking about making my own campaign and thing like things like that. But I I have some of like the the Pathfinder guidebooks and stuff like that and uh monster manuals and and just like i would have to like start watching streams and stuff like that but really right now i'm just in love with like actually playing the game and like making like niche sort of like gimmicky characters instead of like actually like breaking the game because i'm i'm a big fan of like hey if my character has a weakness like that's their weakness like they're they're a real person so they should have these weaknesses so I I made a complete that that one joke campaign that we did. I made a character that only had fire spells, 
And like if he fought against a monster that was immune to fire, he would have an issue. Like and that was just the way the character was. I I realized it and I could have like split it off to like have a bunch of like different coverages and things like that, but it was more fun to just play a character that was flawed. To more like, hey, I like fire, I'm gonna learn fire. Uh kind of like this character I know from anime called Konosuba. There's this mage that only knows explosion magic and she refuses to learn anything else and she can only use it once and once she uses it she passes out. And that's just the way that character is and it's nice and gimmicky. So that that's when I really fell in love with, with D&D is after I started to like roleplay, make character backgrounds and stuff like that, that was, that was really fun. Scratch okay. that uh, creative urge I had. So you kind of mentioned you've never DM'd before. I have never DM'd before. I I started making a custom campaign of my own, and then I stopped because it was it was getting pretty difficult without anything to like any past experience myself. So I'm like, I'll just play more D and D, and then I'll just watch some like in depth stuff later on, and then I'll get back to it eventually. I was just really fascinated with creating the story for the world, not exactly the DM part of it. Right. The last time I DM'd a session, um, on Christmas Eve, my, uh, me and my family always play board games, so my mom, dad, sister, uh, her boyfriend Peter played with us this time, and my girlfriend Alexis played, and I had put together, and it was a really dumbed-down version of the game that I put together myself. Uh, we did a Star oh, Wars, and Obi-Wan Kenobi like had to reach through the timeline to get all these great Star Wars characters to like help him save Santa from Darth Vader. And, um, you know, he was trying to get Qui-Gon Jinn, but ended up with Jar Jar Binks and stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. But my favorite thing was at the end is, like, they got to, like, the throne room and, like, Rudolph had turned to the dark side. So they had to kill Rudolph. Heard about that, too. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's stupid stuff like that. Like, Mike kind of touched on it earlier. Like, you can just, you can do literally anything. Like, your imagination's your limit in D&D. &D. It's, it's just so much fun. Um, that one off that Nick made with the SCPs. Yeah, and it's just a lot of a fun. Gangster. And I, I <laughs> love, love DMing, but I have to put so much time into like yeah. a single session that like I can do it like for like two or three weeks just fine. But then like it just it starts eating into other things I like to do. Like I can't imagine Mike, how much time do you spend putting together a typical session? And like especially with the added layer now that we're in quarantine, like. How much time do you spend putting together a normal session, and how much time do you spend putting together a session now that we're playing online and like you're uploading maps and stuff into a program? So the answer to that question is a lot. Um, <laughs> this entire podcast, which I'm making way too long uh, for you guys, it, I've been making maps. I'm already on. Now, my I've been told app. people like the longer podcasts, so they're gonna okay. eat this up. All right. I mean, if that if they're down with that, I'm down with that. Uh, uh, I love D&D. &D. I love games. They're both things I can talk about forever. Um, yeah, I've been working on maps this whole time. I'm already on my second one, uh, the map I made before. I'm using a program called Dungeon Fog. Um, you can make kind of like the little grid-style terrains. You can uh, uh, make and adjust walls features. It comes with little um, uh, already built-in, uh, what would you call them, resources that you can drop in and out on the map. Uh, normally, time put in, I would say for a campaign, uh, it's recommended generally that, at least from what I've heard and what I've been recommended to by professional people that I've watched, 
again, those people would be the Dungeon Dudes, uh, Taking 20, and uh, Web G, uh, DM. They're both they're all really good, and they do a great job talking about the game and how to play the game and set up the game. Um, they all kind of agree that you should put about the same time that you put into the game as you're going to play the game. Uh, now, depending on how much flavor you want and how much, like vanity you want like if you want to have minis and you want to paint them and if you want to have awesome maps and you want to have these things then you got to put in more time um so that all just comes down to like personal uh desire and i i enjoy uh doing those things like uh the first time we played online i spent like 20 hours making maps like those hotel maps that got burned down in five minutes <laughs> Rip it. But that's what you, that's what everyone wanted to do. So, and and the, the cool thing about the program, the cool thing I'm doing about the program though is, uh, you can actually share maps with people on here. So every time I log in, that's like, hey, check out these maps that just got made that people are sharing for free. So at some point, I've already done some updating to those maps, like putting information. I can share my whole folder, of like my, like in Curse of Strahd, we're in the city called Valaki. And I decided, hey, let's do a homebrew thing where there's like a Jack the Ripper type guy on the loose. So we built the H.H. Holmes murder hotel from Chicago in Valaki. And that dude's been like kidnapping people and killing them. And so the, the players find out about this murder and track them down to the hotel. And they found the hotel and they're like, oh, my God, he's killing tons of people. And they're in the basement. Let's burn it down. And that's what happened. Uh, but he's still on the loose in our game. And so as uh, I, I put Copper Smarts, who's obvious, who's a... Uh, parody to Pennywise, the dancing clown from uh, It, and he's in there too. So those are two homebrew kind of side quests I got in the game going right now. Uh, but yeah, for those maps, I probably put like 20 hours in, but a lot of that also had to do with I'd never used these programs before. I had to sign up for them. I had to set them all up. I had to import all of the information into we're using Fantasy Grounds Unity right now. So I had to learn all those things. I had to put all everybody's information their character sheets in there set them all up i mean now that i know how to do it i can get a session set up less than an hour easy um like these maps i i've been working on them but i also haven't been working on them constantly the whole time uh like i said before i didn't touch my mouse for a while my monitor timed out and that's why i disconnected earlier and had the technical issue um so now i've been more active making these maps uh, but generally, when we're playing at the table, um, uh, I would say I put in, I'd say roughly about the same time, uh, like three, four hours of prep time, um, whether that's painting miniatures for an upcoming encounter I want to have, or if it's uh, like writing story that's going to happen or talking with players outside the game. Like every so often I do like updates with you guys, whether your characters are having visions or dreams or whatever. And I try to get you guys to like RP with me and like little chats and stuff to kind of update your own personal stories. And I think that's kind of important too, because I, I know like uh, the module we're in right now, we're disconnected from the world that you guys came from. So your characters are kind of ripped out of their background. And so I want to try to work their stories into it. And so I think that's kind of important to me to make sure everybody's connected to it in a way. Uh, so I try to take the time to do that. And for me, it's not as bad because it gives me something to think about while I'm at work. And I work one of those jobs where it's just a grind all day, every day, and you don't use your brain. And so 
one thing that's really been nice about D&D for me, especially being the GM or the dungeon master, is that um, I spend a lot of my time now at work thinking about, oh, this would be cool to do in this session, or, oh, this is a great idea for that character's story. Like, what if this happened? And I listen to, like, podcasts or lore videos about the D&D world. And I'm like, how can I implement this in the game? How can I do this? Like, we recently just found out our character, Arvin Ironvane, um, the seven sisters of uh, the daughters of Mistra, we found out, uh, we decided in our world that she decided that she needed a son, and Arvin is the first son. And so he's uh, basically like a demigod, but he doesn't have control of his power yet, and he goes into weird, like, narcoleptic comas because uh, he can't control it. And other times he's able to manifest almost like a Super Saiyan form where he gets, like, extra arcane potency but triggers wild magic and stuff like that but i just and, want it on record that the last time that happened the dwarf paladin still killed more monsters than he did it's true i think a lot of that also <laughs> just had to do with uh the setting too now nah, don't give it to him don't give it to him the dwarf paladin paladin Paladins are really good at slaying stuff. He's out there, man. He's out there. <laughs> Mike, how many minis do you have? Um, I think I think one thing that should be said about you, like you, uh, one thing I just admire about you as a person is like you're you're fairly good with like how much money you have, when to spend money, but like when you get into something, that's what you get into. And like, man, I like uh, how many minis do you have? Because once you decided you were into D and D. Like, I showed up at your house one time, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I can't give you an exact number, but I know it's easily hundreds. Probably, but I'd say probably somewhere between two, 300 miniatures right now. Because um, I know for a fact I've ordered two booster crates. So, for example, you can buy pre-painted miniatures. Uh, uh, Wizards has um, official booster packs that they make, uh, and you can buy those, and basically you can be like, hey, I want, for example, there's the Waterdeep uh, Dragon's Heist module that uh, some people may know Matthew Mercer from Critical Role helped co-write that a little bit. And uh, uh, in that adventure uh, takes place in Waterdeep and they have a set of booster packs that basically feature all of the monsters that show up in that module. And you can buy the booster bricks and get you know the little random figures out of them pre-painted and when you buy a case you generally will get the majority of them and what's kind of nice about that is since they're collectible you know other people will often be trading so it'll be like oh man i didn't get the elephant or i didn't get the xanathar which is a beholder type character and you'll be like oh i'll trade you like i got two of this one i'll trade you this one for that one or even like the miniature store i bought them from will give you 30 percent in-store credit if you send them any miniatures back that you don't need so it's like okay well if i just got two xanathars you only need one, you know, unless I have some crazy idea where I need two, I can get 10 bucks back immediately. And I, I did the math and I'd already went positive on uh, that booster crate I ordered. Like I, I probably spent 300 bucks on that crate, but I got like $400 worth of miniatures when I looked up how much each of them were worth if I sold them all individually. So, and that's one of the great things about Dungeons and Dragons is like ultimately you need some pen and paper and you're good to go. But again, like you, you're definitely the kind of person that you like to make sure you have nice things for the things you're into. How much money? And like, it doesn't have to be a grand total or anything. But kind of like you were talking like separately with figures. How much money do you think you've spent on Dungeons and Dragons? Because like oh 
You bought like nice computer chairs even for us all to sit at around your tables. And like I yeah, can't even imagine what that was alone. Like and you like I said, you have like two hundred, three hundred miniatures, you have all the books, like you you are into this. Yeah, I, I definitely got invested, especially because uh not only is it something I really enjoy, but um since I'm dungeon mastering for two groups now and it's kind of becoming for me it's weekly because we have the one session uh that one's on hold right now because of the pandemic because they only want to play in person which is totally understandable it's a completely different feel online but i feel like the way we have it set up now is good too i also really like the maps that we're making i I think it makes it more immersive um but uh since i i'm playing so much and since i'm also the one hosting since i'm the dungeon master it's kind of like i view it as my responsibility to set things up for everybody and having these things make it more fun for me and I know, like like you said, when we first started, we didn't have any miniatures. We literally showed up with our character sheet, and we would use our D4s as our characters on the map because we're like, well, we don't use this dice, so this is our character. And we played like that for like a year. And when we played One Piece, we used no uh, miniatures, no maps. We All theater of the mind. We were just like, you're about this far away from this guy, or you're like this, or this guy looks like that. And we would just describe it all to each other. And we played like that for like a year and a half. And so it wasn't until I started dungeon mastering that I was like, okay, we're really getting into this. We're still playing. It's been like a year. And I'm like, it's time. Like I want to, to upgrade. I want to get more out of this experience. I'm really enjoying it. And so then I started to put money into it. First I bought, you know, a character for myself. And then I started, when I started dungeon mastering, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start buying the characters that we're going to use as the enemies. Cause it's really weird to me that I'm putting like, you know, a goblin on the table, and I'm like, yeah, that's a vampire. <laughs> like, it just kind of is jarring to me. Like, once you go, it's it's like once you get in, you can't go back. Um, it definitely is a rabbit hole, and uh, I know the dungeon dudes use that exact phrasing. Is like once you get into it, you'd like get way into it. Uh, but it, it you get into it in a good way. You just have to manage how you do it. Like you said, I've probably spent the chairs you asked. I spent sixteen hundred dollars just on the computer chairs. And the reason I did that was because some of our friends, um, myself included, I'm not the lightest person. And, you know, I want the chairs to hold up. I don't want to have to replace chairs all the time. I've had chairs break. So I wanted to make sure we got quality chairs that were durable, that could last, and that were comfortable. And so since this is something that we're doing all the time and we're consistent and I've been asking people and they seem happy and they want to keep playing... I was like, okay, I'll put in the money so we can get the most out of the experience. Pandemic! (laughs) Yeah, between, like, the chairs and between the miniatures and the paint and all that stuff, and now with the softwares that I've been using, I've probably spent, like, $5,000 on D&D. About how much I'd spend on League of Legends. Oh, my God. Back in the day. Back in the day. You still did it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even want to yeah, think Yeah, I don't know exactly why I am that type of person who's like always got to get really into something, but I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily just because I, I really enjoy it and I want to get into it or if it's my mentality of the same way I look at like my video games. Like right now, all those games we talked about earlier, like three hours ago that I was saying that I've been playing, like I had to platinum all of them with the exception of Battlefield 5. I'm missing one trophy, but Shane and I are going to do that together at some point because I need help with it. Uh, 
I just feel like I want to get the most out of my experience. I want to get the most bang for my buck. And I'm just like, you know, if I buy these games, why don't I play them? Or if I buy this game, I want to get everything out of it. Like, I want to get the full experience. And yeah. so I guess that's that's just like the underlying mindset scratching at the back of my head, I guess, is I'm like, this is so much fun, but it could be even more fun. And to that point, I guess, wanting to get the most bang for your buck, like $5,000 on Dungeons & Dragons sounds crazy. But ultimately, if you didn't want to, you would not need to buy anything ever again and be able to play games your that like you'd be able to play Dungeons and Dragons with what you have for your entire life and still have fun, be fresh, new things for the five thousand dollars you spent, as opposed to like if you spent five thousand dollars on games, even if you got the most out of it, like you said, they're gonna end. Absolutely. And that's and that's the thing about D and D is like whether it's a goblin or an orc or whatever, all of these miniatures are reusable in any scenario and and whether it's my campaign or someone else's campaign, like I, I host Ryan's campaign at my house too, just because all my stuff is here and it's a convenient meetup place for everybody now that he lives out in Huntley. So he comes to us, we host here and I have all the miniatures and the tables and the maps and stuff set up. And so it's like, oh, hey, you know, we're going to do this encounter and we've got these guys. It's like, cool, I've got those guys. Here they are. And or maybe like like Jordan said, I'm working on my own homebrew campaign entirely in its own world and like. For example, that's going to be a pirate setting, but it's still going to be like D&D themed. Like there's still going to be goblins. There's still going to be orcs, dragons, all that stuff. And it's like, so I'm going to be able to use all those figures again in that setting. And like any of the modules you pick up, I can use any of those figures in that module, generally speaking. So, you know, the sky's the limit as long as you're creative. Awesome. Um, do either of you have anything else to say on Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah, I was going to ask on. you guys, how do you feel um, your experience has changed from, you know, beginning D&D to now? And what do you think was the most uh, influential part of it? Like, what do you think makes you want to do it more now than it did before? I know we kind of touched on this before. Um, or, like, what is it specifically that you want to do as a player that makes you want to play more Ooh, that's a good question so i think the biggest thing that's changed for me is just the version i've been playing uh like i said i started playing 4e really and while i'm sure there and some of it may have just been growing up learning i think one i think an underrated thing you've said is like how you watch so many play, people like it's okay to get ideas from outside. I mean, they're, they're probably good ideas. That's why people are doing this stuff on the internet. Like, they have good ideas and stuff. So you've gotten ideas, but, like, 4E was very much like you just had to use a spell over and over again. As where, like, I felt like when the additions opened up, it gave you more room for, like, oh, I want to twirl through the air and grab on to the flying bird and swoop down onto that guy with my axe and drive it through his skull. Like, it, it opens up for imagination, and I think part of that, too, and again, not to, like, not to be, like, yanking your chain a lot, but, like, I think having you as DM has helped, and even since then, like I said, I DM that Star Wars thing for my family. It's helped me as a DM. Like, it's just, I, I think, like, I can't imagine playing with a DM who doesn't say yes a lot. Um, I was playing Don't Starve with Jordan um, a couple weeks ago, and there was a guy that I'd never met on there, but he was talking about his campaign, and he was talking about how he wants to kill Peter. He wants to kill Peter, and I'm just like, 
I can't imagine playing with somebody who's like premeditating that thing. Like if you die, you die, whatever. But like, I can't imagine being like, man, having the DM after you. So just, and maybe like you said, some of that's just a matter of getting expectation. But like, I guess having the expectation, having the right DM, having the correct version of the game, all that has like really changed. Like that, that's what I think of that has changed the most since I've started playing and what makes me interested in playing. That said, too, sometimes just making a character that you truly like. Um, I've had a couple characters. I've had, I've had female human warlocks. I've had, I've had um, half orcs. You know, stuff like that. But like, it wasn't until I had made that. Like this dwarf paladin Malthric. Um, this is the first character I've ever made that I'm like truly in love with. And like, you know, again, it's just a matter of like being around the right people. Can you get into it? Like, I mean, I don't I, like. Luckily, like the only way I know how to role play a dwarf is just to be loud, and that just fits my character. So the group doesn't mind that I'm just loud all the time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the snoring. Oh gosh. Well, if it fits the narrative, you can you can target characters to die. Like, like yeah. Mike was just saying earlier, he was trying to kill one of our party members. <laughs> I mean, I I wouldn't say I was out to get him, but I did have a plan set for if he died, and I if wanted him to die. But I wouldn't say I was going to make him die or trying to make him die. Um, again, like you said, I do agree that has to do with expectation. Like, you come to the table, if you want to play a game that's more about, like, DM versus players, that's a very... Uh, and, I, and the reason that kind of mentality is around is that's kind of how Dungeons & Dragons was back in, like, first, second, and maybe the beginning of third edition, is the game was kind of presented as the dungeon master is the monsters, and he's going to kill you, and you have to survive. And like that's kind of the way they set it up, and now it's more of like it's a cooperative storytelling experience, and the player characters play a character they made. And I know Jordan has asked me before, like, how do you get enjoyment out of it when you don't get to play your own character when you're playing the DM for us all the time? And my answer to that is because I get to, like you said, with the character creation, there's so many options in 5e that you're like, how would this weird quirky thing work out if I tried it? the perfect time to try those things because you're like hey i don't even have to like worry about if this character dies or sucks i'm just gonna make this interesting little npc and drop them in here and see what they think and how it works out and so there's like some of those characters i've made that i'm waiting for you guys to encounter in that game too um what about you jordan i i pretty much um interesting question I don't know. I just I just love world building in general and other people's world building and and seeing a character's interactions with that world to the point where like my angle uh, with the character I have right now in your campaign is like I don't want to keep playing this character. Like this character was made for a specific reason and that reason once it becomes fulfilled or once it goes on the path of being fulfilled, I want to make another character and you know like have a different purpose for it like right now i have a, i have a vampire hunter uh kind of character and i made her to be a vampire slash werewolf slash bump in the night kind of slayer uh and if she's put in a in a context where like she's killing dragons or she's she's taking care of all this and blah blah blah, blah that character no longer has a role in that scene and even more so her abilities and such were created around 
the the pretense of it being you know monster like monster slang so she will be retired at some point in my mind and that that's what i get fun out of it it's like she becomes a part of this world and maybe one day like i'll have another character and you know he'll like oh there's there's vampires i hear there's a you know prominent vampire hunter from long ago that you know and i you know i get you in a meeting with her and then we meet my old character i'm like hey hey because i always loved that in in video games we talked about it at the beginning of this podcast like mount silver like being able to like meet your character from like your older game was like the coolest experience in my life when i was growing up like it was incredible i was like so this character just doesn't disappear like he he played an active role in the world known and it, it wasn't just game over because that was always what i hated was just like when when something would end like it was a game over even if it was a positive game over like when you beat the game the game was over if you lo lose at the game the game is over so there's a sense of like sadness i would get when something would end but in a world that's living and breathing and always you know adapting to the choices that you make being affected by it something that'll always bring me back into playing uh dungeons and dragons is knowing that eat live or die in the dungeons and dragons world my character played a role in it it was in there so that's that's an, that's one thing that makes me keep playing is like it's kind of like immortal in a way like everlasting no matter what happens to my characters you know good influence or bad influence like it it played it is now part of the lore of the world and that way it never dies and i'm like oh that's that's pretty romantic and i like that yeah, and I could definitely see specifically your character too. Um, like after this journey, potentially like retiring to restart like the monastery she left and try to rebuild it back up. And like you said, like take other people under her wing and train them up to be the next like frontier of like vampire hunters or or whatever that they are, or, or oh, maybe yeah. even stay behind in Barovia. Like this place, I'm not the the hero. Of this this country deserves but i'm the hero this country needs that stays behind to like protect barovia or something because there's nobody yeah, left that was my plan yeah be the batman of barovia mm -hmm. uh, did you guys have other questions for me i'm good i think i'm good too wow boys what a what a meaty ass episode we just recorded um like mike said earlier next week we're gonna have our good buddy matt check on the podcast with us i'm really excited i want to chat with him actually today before we recorded um the uh, epic released some game or not like a gameplay but like a tech demo showing off unreal engine 5 on the playstation 5 and i th i thought well we could have talked about that today but i thought having matt check who went to school for some gaming stuff um be fun to have him on for a conversation like that so we'll talk about that next week with him i don't know what he wants to do for a topic of the week i need to talk to him uh he kind of mentioned i think he mentioned something to me in passing but i need to double check with him make sure we have the show that he wants uh michael thank you for your time uh jordan thank you for your time yeah absolutely no we'll have you back uh until next week, which we might need to record on Thursday. I know I posted something about Wednesday, but they're 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 slowly easing me back into work, Jordan. So I've got to yeah. work three days next week. 
Um, so we'll, we'll we'll talk about that, but it might need to be Thursday, even though I just mentioned something Wednesday. Either way, uh, we'll keep you up to date on the Facebook. Until next week, I'm Aaron. That was Jordan. That was Mike. See you guys. Bye. See you later.